ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Business Brew. I'm your host, Bill Brewster. We got Andrew Walker with us today. Uh, as a reminder, none of this is financial advice. Do your own due diligence. Uh, we are just two people having a conversation for entertainment purposes only. But I will tell you that what you're going to hear today is smart stuff. I like Andrew a lot. I'm going to start out this podcast by pitching him because he starts all his podcasts by pitching other people. Andrew writes yet another value blog. He does yet another value podcast, which I think is one of the best podcasts out there. Specifically, I think he owns the niche of having people pitch. He's well prepared when people come on. He knows his shit. They know their shit. Listen to it. Um, and he's got a subscription service. How can people subscribe to you? They can just go over to yetanotherValueBlog.com. They can you know, re- read the stuff. I try to post some case studies of prior write-ups that have been written, or if you like yetanotherValueBlog.com, I think you'll, you'll like the premium stuff. And uh, there's all the normal subscription stuff on there. They can just go through that uh, process. And one thing that I find particularly interesting about you as an investor is you are, have a knack, I think, for picking, um, like charter is what I associate you with the most. I apologize if that's not what you want to be, but that's in my head. And, uh, that was like early to see a compounder. And then I also really like how you're looking at special situations a lot. That's not, um, there aren't that many people talking about the same stuff that you're talking about. So I appreciate subbing. I appreciate what you do. And, uh, I think other people would get a, a benefit out of subscribing. So if you like what you hear today, sub to him. Well, hey, look, I appreciate that. I appreciate you having me on for what I'm kind of thinking in my mind is a home and home series because you came on my (laughs) podcast a a couple months ago. That's right. No, look, I'm I'm really excited. I I love this podcast. You know, I I know everybody goes on a podcast and says they love it, but I listen to your I mean, I'm Mike from Non-Gap's number one stand. So obviously I listened to that over the weekend and I like the creepy echoey ghost voice that was in the background there. <laughs> yeah, hopefully we don't have to do that again. That was a pain. Yeah. And, and look, I haven't gotten through all the podcasts because it's daunting. Two hours. I was telling you before the podcast, I was a little scared to come on, but I, I, I love I love them all. I, I thought your interview with uh, Dan was actually the best podcast I listened to last year. So I, huh. I'm really excited. I know I'm stepping into big shoes to fill, but I, lots of stuff for us to talk about and I'm excited to do this. Oh, man, I'm just happy that I, I get the quality of guests that I have. People that compliment the podcast, I just say it's all because I get good guests. Uh, you know, it it's it's kind of crazy. I I tweeted out um, like some Naval Bont or whatever yesterday said that, uh, you know, if you want like asymmetric opportunities, start tweeting, start a podcast, whatever. And just the network that I have found that it opens up is like so worth it. And I can see it on your podcast, man. You get like crazy good guests to come pitch. I mean, people want to pitch their best idea, I think, on your podcast. That's got to be cool to be in the center of. Yeah, look, I think you're right. And it's something I, not that it happens all the time, but when people send me a message like, hey, how can I become a better investor, get a job in investing, all this sort of stuff. I'm like, look, the the best thing to do, start putting your stuff out there. You know, like I get if, if you go, if you want to go work at JP Morgan or something, you know, they're not going to let you keep writing a blog, but the way most people I think connect nowadays is on Finchwit, have a blog. I, I think I'm a much better investor for having put all this stuff out there. And uh, I agree with you. It just, it kind of, it, it is some work, you know, I, I, I'm sure you feel the same way getting podcast guests on and prepping for podcasts and stuff is work. But I, I, I think the returns are, you know, a, they're asymmetric and B, I think the returns can be really good. Yeah, I agree with that. I I like to think of what this is doing is improving my life sharp ratio. Like I know that 
this is uncorrelated from my investment portfolio and it's taking some time away from investments, which is suboptimal in the short term, but I think it's probably de-risking other parts of my life. So I'm pretty okay with that. Well, look, Spotify stock goes up 10% every time they buy a podcast network. So what we're going to do, we're going <laughs> we're gonna to roll yet another value podcast in the Bruce. Yes. And, uh, and we're going to roll them into one. We're going to sell them to Spotify. Their stock will go up 20%. I, I, would you sell it for $100 million? I'd sell my podcast for $100 million. The problem solved. Yeah, but I just... Before we just like sell out to Spotify, I just want to throw out there's some IPOs with letters behind them that I would be open to spacking into also. Like I don't need to if if people want to start a bidding frenzy, I'm down to do whatever you want. It, you know, it would be interesting to SPAC uh, just a podcast. I don't know what subscriber numbers you're getting. The subscriber numbers on my podcast, it would be very interesting to SPAC. But, you know, and I think we're going to talk about SPACs. But one of the we great- both have growth. Say again. How can how can you value the growth that you and I have? Well, so I think we're going to talk about SPACs. And that's one of the things that people uh, don't realize about SPACs. With, I think one of the reasons SPACs are so popular is because if you go through a normal IPO process, you're not allowed to do, put out forward projections, Right. But if you go through a SPAC, because the SPAC has already gone public, so if you're merging into a SPAC as part of a merger, you can put out future projections. So when we go into a uh, when we go into a SPAC, we don't have to reveal uh, LTM listener numbers. You and I can just kind of put our fingers in there and say, you know what? I feel like yet another value podcast is going to be listened to by two million people in 2025, and we'll base all of our financials, valuation, everything off that forward projection. I like that. And then we could probably figure out what we think those listeners are going to be worth in 2025. And we got some industry stuff that we could project too. I, I think this makes sense, man. You want to merge like formally after this? I, I'm Have your lawyers call my lawyers. We're going to get this done. <laughs> nice. My people will be in touch with yours. <laughs> so actually, one of the reasons that uh, I reached out to you is uh, Jen Ross wanted somebody that knew how to, to talk about SPACs intelligently. And I said, I know just the guy. So uh, she is. She was the catalyst to this conversation. I'm glad she did it because I've wanted to talk to you for a while. So do you want to you want to tell people that don't know about like just from like first basic principles? I mean, you already got into a little bit with the specs that you can show projections. But what is why is this craze going on right now? Do you think? Yeah. So uh, let me just. You gave this disclaimer at the start, but let me just start with the disclaimer. So I, I work for Rangeley Capital, and we we actually run a SPAC fund. Uh, my, my partner, Chris the Muth, is the the PM on that. But I, you know, you can tell I, I've done a lot on SPACs, and uh, my fund, Special Ops, has a, a large investment in a SPAC or two as well. So I'm very familiar with this. So a SPAC is a special purpose acquisition vehicle, and what it is is a management team goes to goes you know through a normal IPO process and investors give them money. And most SPACs come out in the 200 to 300 million range. So investors give them $200 million and that $200 million goes into a trust. It gets parked in a trust, it's completely safe. And the uh, management team then goes and tries to find a merger. And when they find a merger, they, you know, they strike the deal and they go back to their shareholders and they say, hey, here's the deal that we struck. Here's the valuation, here's our projections, here's everything. Here's the, we're gonna open the entire kimono to you. And as an investor, you have uh, the option to either redeem your shares and get the $10 per share you got back, or you can vote. It, actually, the vote doesn't really matter. Or you can keep your shares. The merger goes through, and now you just kind of own a stock in a company, right? And um, you know, there's there's different twists, but in general, when you're IPOing, you know, hedge funds love this, because, especially now, because 
you give someone $10 per share, you get your unit, actually you buy a spec unit, which is one share plus some of a warrant and the warrant terms can vary, but the warrant generally lets you buy a share at 11.50 if the stock's a real home run. So you give them $10, you get a unit, and then you can redeem for $10 if you don't like the deal, or you can sell, if the market loves the deal, you know, you can hold the share, you can sell whatever, but it's kind of a risk, uh, you know, again, nothing investing advice, but it's kind of a risk-free bet, right? Only opportunity cost. You've put $10 into trust, they'll come to you with a deal. If the deal's great, great. If not, you take your $10 back and you walk away and you've only lost the time. So that's kind of the overview of the SPAC process. And you know, it's been around for a while, and for years, it was a hedge fund favorite just kind of for a little bit better than bond returns, right? You would uh, yeah. you'd buy these, and lots of people were actually practicing it. You'd buy these uh, on the IPO, and then you would just redeem, get your $10 per share, kind of keep that free warrant. And if the deal went through, you could sell the warrant. And uh, it was pricing out very nicely. Like most people said, you could make 6 to 9% per year just buying the IPO, redeeming, and selling the warrant. Uh, and selling the warrant. But in the past year, you know, uh, I think it started with Virgin Galactic, IP, which was IPOA. It became SPCE. That was Chamath's first uh, SPAC. That happened, and that deal went kind of parabolic. And then DraftKings last year uh, went public through a SPAC, and that's been about, a, you know, again, trust is $10 per share. I think DraftKings is trading for $60 per share. And all of a sudden, with those two, people realize, hey, if you take really growthy companies public through SPACs, the returns can be astronomical. Retail, it's really retail investors will buy the heck out of these things. And especially if it has anything to do with electric vehicles, you know, and there's a wave of electric vehicle companies coming public. And literally they announced and their stocks are trading for $30 the next day. So um, people really, it's buying us back at trust has gone from, hey, you get really nice risk adjusted returns to, oh my God, they might announce an electric vehicle merger and you're going to get 3x overnight. And you got the warrants on the back end. Yeah, right? yeah. And you get the warrants on the back end, though. You know, the market is so hot. So the warrants were given to uh, were given to entice hedge funders to put, you know, ten dollars per share into the trust and kind of get that return they needed. Right now, the SPAC market is so hot. You're starting to see a lot of um, SPACs come out without any warrants at attached to them. So like hmm. uh, T I bet Chamath's next SPAC is not going to have any warrants attached to it. Uh, TBA, which is another SPAC by uh, Tama Bravo. Is that it? The, the really famous uh, software investing private equity firm, they just did a SPAC that I believe doesn't have any warrants attached to it. So it, over time, because the SPAC market's so hot, you know, if it's a bad founding team, they have to give more. So they have to give a better a better warrant or they have to put more money in trust. With the SPAC market so hot, you're starting to see a lot of warrants come back. But I, I'm probably diving too far in the weeds here. No, not at all. But, but just to take a step back. So historically, if you were looking at a market that you perceived to be frothy, and a SPAC was coming out, you could say to yourself, okay, well, you know what? I'll buy the SPAC. I get the warrants. If I don't like the deal, then I can just put basically my my shares back to the SPAC, get my 10 bucks back. No harm, no foul. Maybe I have some opportunity cost to that, right? Exactly, but, yeah. But like today, it seems like you're paying premiums to the SPAC uh, trust, right? So now you actually do have some downside there. Well, so if you're buying in the IPO, right, you're still buying at $10 per share, but the SPAC yeah. market has definitely become markedly different. So, you know, uh, a couple years ago, most SPACs, they would IPO and, you know, so again, you IPO as a unit and the unit includes a share and a warrant. And after 46 days, you can, the company can break the units apart so that the shares and warrants start trading separately. And the shares are what you're going to redeem to get your $10 per share back. And in general, those shares would trade at 
970, 980 or something below trust until the deal was announced because people were kind of factoring in the opportunity cost of time and nobody thought these SPACs would pop like this. But as you said, today, most SPACs are trading at an actual, just the shares are trading at a premium to trust. And I think it's really crazy, right? Like if I gave $100 to a private equity firm and said, hey, you know, I committed $100, go find a deal. I would never value that $100 at 110, 120, right? Like they actually have yeah. to go find a deal and produce value. But when you look at SPACs right now, like, uh, you know, Pershing Square Tontine is probably one of the most popular ones. As we're talking, I think it's trading at, uh, that's a different, that has $20 in trust, not $10 like most SPACs, but that's trading for $32 per share. So investors are saying, hey, Bill Ackman, we like you so much. We think that we think cash in your hands is worth 60% more, right? 32 over yeah. 20. It's worth 60% more than what we gave it to you. That's how excited we are for whatever potential deal you're about to announce. Uh, but, you know, it actually gets worse than that because founders aren't founders and sponsors aren't doing this for free. Um, they're doing it because they get what's known as promote or founder shares. And basically what that works out to uh, Bill Ackman's back is unique, but in general, it works out to if they if you approve a deal, they get 20% of the equity of the deal. So, you, you know, right now, if you look at like an IPO F, which is one of the Chamath SPACs, that's trading for about $15 per share versus $10 in trust. So it's trading 50% above cash. But after you factor in his promote once the deal goes through, investors are basically saying, we think whatever deal you strike is going to be worth 2x whatever you price it at immediately. That's how excited they are for these deals. It, it, and it's really crazy. Again, you know, you wouldn't, if you gave money to KKR and they hadn't found a deal, you wouldn't mark it up 10, 20, 30, 40, 50% above your commitment the next day. The thing that is like so confounding to me is not only are they marking it up, right? Like, okay, if you had one SPAC out there, and there was like a scarcity value on that sort of SPAC and it was Ackman and you could say like, okay, this guy, I know he's going to go into consumer and there's not a lot of bidders and we're coming out of 09. So like, boy, you could like the competition for good deals is probably going to be lower. That's one thing. But to me to say like the market, you know, I don't know how frothy frothy is, but I do know that it's not a conservative market right now. And all the SPACs, I mean, they're, they're gonna, it seems to me like there is more SPACs than there are quality companies out there. Um, and maybe that's, you know, just an old man shouting in the wind. I'm not <laughs> sure. But it seems to me that on top of that dynamic, now investors are assigning a premium to these SPACs when they're buying in. And it's like, I, I mean, I guess some of them could work, but uh, it seems like a risky proposition from my seat. Well, I, I think there, I, I love that point. And I think there's two things. You said, hey, maybe if there was only one SPAC in the consumer space, you know, you'd value that at a premium. But again, like a SPAC doesn't exist in a vacuum, right? Like KKR and every other private equity firm has consumer, has consumer arms that they can, you know, P LBO these, uh, these deals. So, even if there was only one set SPAC in a Spectre, it's not like they're the only person who can buy a company. And then like, you know, you look, I, I think Pershing Square is so interesting because, you know, Pershing Square, Bill Ackman's hedge fund is publicly traded, right? Like an LP interest in it through, uh, it's on the London Stock Exchange, but it's PSH on the London Stock Exchange. And it trades for a 25% discount to net asset value. And by the way, uh, the hedge fund is going to have a mammoth stake in whatever PSTH does because they've committed to buying a bunch of shares at trust value whenever they announce a deal, right? So if you're really excited about PSTH, the play might be Pershing Square, right? They're going to have a huge yeah. stake. And by the way, you're excited about PSTH because you're excited about Bill Ackman's capital allocation skills. 
go buy the hedge fund, right? Like it trades at a 25% yeah. discount. But investors are so excited about SPACs right now that they want to go buy PSTH, the SPAC itself, at a 60% premium to trust without knowing what deal that what deal is going to happen. And it, you know, I think it just speaks to how crazy the SPAC market is right now that you could have, hey, here's Bill Ackman's main thing, 25% discount to NAV, and NAV is going to be a lot of this actually undervalued investment into the SPAC since they buy it at trust. We're, let's ignore that. Let's go buy the SPAC itself at a 60% premium just because it's a SPAC and we don't know what it's going to be, you know? So I, I just think that's a little crazy and it just shows how frothy the SPAC market is. Well, I mean, why do you think that is? Like, I know you said you think it's crazy, but if you just had to like sort of, you, you think it's just like SPAC mania, basically? Yeah, I, I think it's SPAC mania. Uh, you know, I think there was an article in the Wall Street Journal. I think we've been seeing it for months. Um the the kind of diamond head diamond hands wall street bet people they're really turning their attention to SPACs. uh i do think there's a little bit of hey the past 20 have worked so let's just keep betting on this till it craps out but it reminds me a lot of uh you know people have said it reminds them a lot of the dot-com bubble where these SPACs come out they trade at huge premiums and they announce a deal and they trade at even bigger premiums and uh at some point the music will have to stop one way or the other because you know, right now there's like four SPACs going public a day and there's not four public ready companies getting created every day. But while the music's playing, I think people are just dancing, dancing really hard with these SPACs. I'll tell you, man, I, I was just having this conversation uh, at lunch and I said uh, with my dad, I said, I don't know what is going on. Like, I, I have no idea whether or not we're near a top, whatever. Like, I don't have a clue to how to answer that question. What I do know is it is an odd time to watch baseball cards, Bitcoin, uh, vintage cars, SPACs. Like there is a lot of stuff that is ripping simultaneously right now. Part of me thinks it's all just short fiat or something like that. And part of me just thinks it's like crazy speculation. I don't know how to sort of decouple the thoughts, but if we ever look back at this and say, boy, that was a top, I'll say, yeah, that sort of makes sense in retrospect, but it's hard to know living through it. It, it really is. And, you know, it's hard to know, especially because, A, it's it's always hard to call a top, right? But, you know, with, with something like GameStop, where, uh, you know, the, the dichotomy was so crazy where you, you would see GameStop stock up 200% today and the market cap's gone, you know, it's up 1,000% in the year. And then they would cut from that to GameStop stores themselves where they have like going out of business signs, you know, and they're liquidating <laughs> yeah. stores en masse. Uh, I'm with you. It, it's tough. It, I, I wasn't really around for the dot-com bubble, but I know a lot of people say it reminds them of the dot-com bubble. But I do think as an investor, it's exciting. You know, like um, th there are a lot of things that play into the, that ha are connected to all of this mania and bubbles that are not getting any appreciation for it. You know, we mentioned Pershing Square, the hedge fund, which still trades at a 25% discount to NAV. And it's even bigger once you adjust for how much they're going to have of the SPAC versus the SPAC. But there's a lot of these companies that touch and are, benefiting from this mania that the market isn't giving them any credit for because maybe it's a little bit more complex to see how they're benefiting. Maybe it's not quite as sexy, but I, I think as an investor, there's a lot of opportunity kind of on the the fringes of this mania. Do you have a sense of like historically, do SPACs work best if it's like a private equity firm that wants to sort of get out of their interest or 
Like, is there some pattern recognition that you think works well? So, I, you know, I think the first thing is we're really we're still pretty early into the SPACs. You know, it, from 2010 to 2018, I think there were like 40 or 50 SPACs IPO in every year. And then last year it was like 250. And this year it feels like there's been 250 in January alone. So I don't think like we're seeing a lot more sponsors go into the area, you know, like KKRs, I think they launched last week or it's this week, a billion dollar SPAC. Like all the PE firms are moving into it. Uh, I don't think we've seen like a lot of data on what really works in SPACs. The data on SPACs, by the way, uh, I, I, I would tell this every time for years when people would pitch SPAC and be like, the data on SPACs is horrible. Like if you're a company that uh, goes through a SPAC, on average, I think like the average stock is down 15% uh, one year after the the merger or whatever, which makes sense, right? Because the companies agreed to sell themselves at an agreed upon price and the public buyers are actually paying a premium to that price because they have to pay for the promote and the fees and everything. So it makes sense that it, you know, rational people agreeing to sell are selling at the top. And if you pay a bunch of expenses on that, you're gonna, uh, gonna lose. But yeah, I, I don't know exactly what, I don't think there's been anything that proves what works and what doesn't. I do think there's early indications that if it's a sponsor that has success in the past, it looks like they're going to have success going forward, which I do think makes some sense. Like there's a little bit of a flywheel where you go to companies and you say, hey, our last SPAC, you know, was up 2X. People are going to be really excited about this. We, we've got great financing connections. We can get this done. You know, we're going to get this done. So I think there's a little bit of a reputation flywheel that they benefit from. Uh, I think there's going to be some really interesting things. Like I mentioned KKR did a $1 billion SPAC. Well, if you're a KKR LP, how do you feel about KKR now having a $1 billion SPAC? Like, if I'm invested in KKR Fund 11 and they find an attractive deal, does it go to the SPAC or does it go to me as a private equity yeah. firm? If they yeah. agree to sell a company from Fund 11 into the SPAC, well, how do I know that I'm getting fair value if I'm on the seller side? And if I'm on the buyer side, how do I know that I'm getting fair value? So there's going to be a lot of conflicts of interest questions on the back end of this too. There's a, there's a guy that I know pretty well. He's got quite a resume, uh, an older gentleman. And he told me like three years ago, he, he said, you need to start worrying about when private equity funds start flipping companies to other private equity funds. And then he said, you know, there's one exception, like if one's a sort of a mid market and then the other is like a large market, you know, then it could make sense. But in general, he's like, once you start to see these guys sort of writing up their asset values by flipping to each other, that's sort of when you need to start to get worried a little bit. So it'd be interesting to see whether or not they start flipping into SPACs. And to your point, if I, if I was in Fund 11 and they flipped it to a SPAC, I would be really concerned about whether or not there was a conflict of interest there and how it impacted me. I mean, that's a that's a very good point. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because most of the private equity firms have launched kind of like, you, you know, like Chamath with the IPO. He had IPOA was one, IPOB was two. Most of them have launched SPAC one in the past three to six months. So you're just starting to see the first deals come from this private equity SPAC wave. It'll be interesting to see what deals they do. And as you said, it'll be interesting to see if they're doing deals with funds they already have. How are they explaining these conflicts of interest? Hmm. So how did you get interest, like interested in SPACs? How did that start? And also, uh, if, if I was a skeptic, I might say, well, you're saying all these bad things about SPACs. Why does your firm focus on them? So, yeah, so it might make sense to clarify that a little bit. So I guess... Um, it started because in 2018, 2019, we saw this uh, this opportunity, right? Like the SPAC fund was supposed to be, hey, we're going to buy these at IPO, especially, you know, hmm. we think in 2018 and 2019, there was almost no divergence between the, the SPAC sponsor quality, right? And we thought, hey, 
we can go and we can kind of pick and choose and uh, we can get good allocations to IPOs from SPACs with really good sponsors, partner with them, try to shape this deal. And, you know, as we said, get the get the kind of uh, risk, really attractive risk adjusted returns. We'll partner with good people. If they come with a great deal, great. It'll be a home run. If not, you know, we, we can redeem, get our money and go go on to greener pastures. And that was the initial thing. And then, you know, last year happened and all of a sudden it went, oh, hey, this thing that was really safe or this really careful strategy, it's just swept up in this massive wave. And, you know, just because there's just because there's a lot of froth doesn't mean that there's not opportunity, right? Like, A, there's still opportunity in if you can buy the SPAC at trust value right now. I mean, things are, you know, SoftBank or Liberty Media did SPACs. They IPO'd at 10 and their first trade was 13. So there's still a huge pop. If you, there's still... If you can get into the IPO, there's still a lot. But I still think like, you know, there's a lot of uh, SPACs that are trading at 5% above trust, which is, you know, two years ago, you would have never believed a SPAC pre-deal would trade above above trust. But you can still buy really good sponsors who are maybe a little less buzzy than the, the real kind of names out there for close to trust value and get access to uh, really interesting optionality, I would say. An interesting idea that I heard you talk about on Toby's podcast was selling puts at basically par for lack of a better term, right? With the trust value. So if you're selling like the $10 and you have the, you know, if you, if you do get put the put and you end up giving back your unit or whatever, uh, at least you've collected the premium, right? Yeah. So this was with uh Pershing square in particular, again, $20 per share in trust. They haven't announced the deal, but when they do, you'll have the opportunity to, if you don't like the deal, if the market doesn't like the deal, whatever you can, give your share back to the company and you'll get $20 per share back. And, uh, you know, the volatility on these things is so high. And I think volatility in this market is really interesting because Wall Street Bet seems to have determined that the way to play the stock market is to buy short dated out of the money call options. And like yeah. there's an other side to every trade. And if they buy, if all they're doing is buying call options, volatility on these things spike up. And, you know, the funny thing about a like, a spec is it's literally just a pile of money sitting in the bank. The volatility on this thing should be pretty much. Yeah. Like nil, right? Right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's kind of binary. Right. But for Pershing and unfortunately this trade, you know, it's a different trade now than it was when I I started talking about it, but uh, the volatility is still extremely high. And, you know, when, when I was writing about it, you could sell a $20 put. So at trust value five months away for about a dollar per share. So, you know, 5%, gross over five months that's a really nice annualized return and by the way if even if they announce the deal tomorrow it would probably take them three or four months to close so they would be closing the deal right around when your option expired so there was every chance in the world that if you sold this option uh you know they would not be able to close the deal before the the put option expired so if that happened the shares couldn't even trade down below 20 because if they did you'd get put the stock and then you just immediately go and put them to the put them to the company at 20 right so you were selling a put option on something that had a put embedded into it so the volatility you know it's still crazy and a lot of these things still have insane amounts of volatility you know yeah yeah, that's a, on, in rap terms. It's puts on puts on puts. Um, <laughs> yeah, but it, you know, I think it speaks to again. There's, I think there's a SPAC mania. I think there's an EV mania. But if you're like, if you're really open to exploring different areas and looking at things through different lenses, bubbles do create opportunities for. This is not value investing. This is more event investing. And again, options are risky. Everyone should, you know, kind of consult a financial advisor. Be careful. But if you're 
if GameStop, if all they're doing is buying call options, you know, I, I wrote this up right at the height of the mania. You could go buy, sell $3 GameStop put options for like 50 cents, right? So yeah. in order for GameStop to, in order for you to get put those options, GameStop would have to go back to where it was like in November before the squeeze even started. And if GameStop decided to raise money at any point in time, these put options go to zero because they have so much net cash on their balance sheet. So the fact that everybody was going out of their minds buying calls, it created this really weird pricing structure throughout all the options chain. And I just think, you know, if you're looking at bubbles, a bubbles create unnatural asset prices and there can be a lot of option opportunities associated with it. Yeah. Um, all I can say is I totally agree, and I also feel a little bit conflicted uh, given what my life has incurred through. Uh, you know, I, I had a family member that was not uh, experienced in options trading, and it, it uh, he ended up taking his life. So, anyone that is listening, please do, um, you know, take that uh, with uh, the respect it deserves. Options can be financial dynamite in the wrong hands, but. Uh, that said, man, I was looking at some of the implied volatility in that GameStop trade, and I was like, how do I figure out a way to make some money on this? But then I tried to enter my order, and uh, by then all the – all the like TD was throttling what you were able to do. I called them, and I said, why can't I sell some – like I wanted to sell a call spread. It was a long-dated call spread, and I think I, I think it had to be under 120 for me to collect uh, the credit. Um, but they said like the reason was there's – the. I've never heard this term before, but the shares were in a no borrow status, right? So they said, you know, since it's an American option, you can get put it prematurely. And if that were to occur, they said, like, we just can't go get the shares to fulfill your obligation. So we can't let you do this. We just can't. Uh, I thought that was an incredible explanation. I'd never seen anything like that before. You, you know, it's crazy. Our, our financial markets were not designed for something like GameStop. Like, uh, you know, Jeffries is our our prime broker, and they they did something similar, right? They were saying, hey, we just can't support trading this. Like, the risk department's not letting it. Our brokers aren't clearing trades into this anymore. And who would have thought, like, I've got cash in my account. There's a stock out there. I literally can't go buy this stock because it, it's breaking the the financial system. Yeah, that was wild, huh? I mean, do you think, like, do you think that that was retail, like, is being reported, or by the time this comes out, it, the there may be things, but I'm, I just, I don't know, man. I got a feeling that this is big time hedge fund money, um, and I haven't seen any of the reporting lately. I haven't been. I don't know. So carefully, uh, Matt Levine, who I, I, his newsletter is pretty much required reading for everybody in finance, but uh, they, they had, uh, he had a stat that was Citadel showed that actually retailer retail. Uh, yeah, was right. a net seller of GameStop into the spike in uh, yeah, institutions right. for net buyers. I don't know, man. I, I have trouble believing that I, there was definitely some short squeeze dynamics and stuff, but I have trouble believing any hedge fund was really GameStop's at 300. Let's buy this for the quick flip or something, you know? I, yeah, it's a dangerous game. <laughs> yeah. And like Wall Street Bet, you know, they were adding a million members a month and just like based on my talks with friends and stuff, it seemed like some really unsophisticated uh, people were piling in you know i can't tell you how many times i heard from even from people who i thought would know better like short interest is over 100 how does this thing ever go down again you know this is going to the moon i should put my whole life savings i'd be like no like you should put none of your you should put none of your money into this thing (laughs) you should treat it like the plague and run yeah and it's funny like as a financial person it puts you in a weird position where somebody comes to you and says hey gamestop's at 150 should i buy this and you're like a not financial advice but b no, absolutely. God, no, please don't. And then the next day it's at 300 and they come to you and they're mad at you, yeah. right? They're like, 
my money would have doubled. And then two days later, the stock's at 40 and you're like, they, they never come back to you. But it, it was a, it was weird. Yeah. Yeah, that was wild. So uh, just for people that don't know about you, how long have you been investing like full time? Uh, you know, I, let's see. So I, I opened my PA account in 2008. Uh, so right okay. in the financial crisis. And I remember I was in college then and like I would go to class and I'd sit in the back of the room and like read read 10Ks in the back of the room and stuff. Uh, I, I think, you know, I, I probably got onto the professional side in 2013. I, I went to uh, Bain Capital Credit. It used to be called Sanctity and uh, worked there. That's when I... So professional investing since 2013, running a PA since 2008, I'd say. And then what? When you pitched it, Iris Sohn, that was what year? Let's see. So I pitched it, Iris Sohn, in 2017, I want to say, maybe 2018. How was that? Was that intimidating? It's it's pretty intimidating. So the way it works I is, would think. you know, uh, I, th- I think it was like in February, you submit a, in February, March, you submit a four-page write-up of a situation, Right. And then they, uh, like two weeks before Irisone, they call in the four or five finalists, right? They say, hey, you're a semifinalist, but they don't tell you if you won or not, right? Hmm. They say, you're a semifinalist, come to Irisone, and uh, we'll announce the winner there. So you have to have your presentation and everything prepared, but knowing that you only have a 20% chance of winning Irisone, right? So you go, huh. and obviously the, the reason they do this is they don't want... Uh, they don't want you front running if you're the winner or not, right? Because the stock's mm. probably going to pop a little bit if you're a winner. And, you know, if you're David Einhorn and you're going to pitch your idea during market hours, that's okay for you to front run. But it's not okay for, you know, <laughs> random Joe who's winning IRSN's front run. So they uh, they bring the five or four finalists into a room. And one of the judges comes out around like 345 or 4 o'clock and says, hey, great work, everyone. The winner is this person. And they're going on to present in... 10 minutes or something. Right. So wow. it's a, it's a pretty weird, uh, it's a pretty weird, pretty weird situation where you have to have this presentation ready. You want to be on your best footing. Cause you know, obviously it's a big speaking engagement with a lot of names there, but you, you don't know if it's going to, if all that works going to be for nothing or not. Yeah, that's cool. How'd your idea end up working? Actually pretty, pretty poorly. Well, I don't, it worked really well for a while. And then I think the management team made some, uh, some br- pretty big mistakes. So if you were like, if you got in and then got out at the event time, so it was a, a pitch of La Quinta into the spinoff of Corepoint. And I did a lot of work on like the cost basis of the hotels, all the opportunity. If you had played just the event, it would have worked out really well. If you had held on, it, uh, you know, they did the spin. I think they were mismanaged and then COVID hit and, you know, COVID just wrecked, wrecked it. Hmm. That makes sense. Um, yeah, that's, uh, that's my, uh, my one fear about uh, being so loud about curate, right, is like it was kind of a spe- – well, it was a special situation. So now, you know, you see how the business seasons. But the situation worked, and uh, sometimes sometimes that's good enough, right? You bet the you bet the sit, and then you move on. Well, you know, you with curate uh, – I learned this a lot of times, but like I did learn some lessons from that because, A, I'd known curate for a long time. Uh, but I think you identified, and I, I think this is – it's a lesson I've learned and I continue to learn. Like sometimes it like your story can be right or wrong, but sometimes it's just picking up on the inflection point where the story changes. Right. And like that, 
that can be what matters so much, whether, you know, you could have been right on Q-rate for years, but the inflection point, as you identified, where they return the capital to shareholders, obviously business was hugely benefited by COVID, but like a lot of times it's these inflection points and catching them is what mattered. Or, you know, like I think of, um, I'm trying to think of a company, but, you know, sometimes you'll you'll have a company that will, IAC is actually a pretty good example, you know? Yeah. They, they did well, but since the spin of match, the stock has been on fire. And a lot of it's yeah, because it there's really huge has. tailwinds in their stock. But, you know, if you catch the company right before that inflection point, that's actually where a lot of the alpha can be created. Yeah. Is that, do you look for that a lot now? Like when, when you're writing up, like how do you come across your ideas generally? Yeah. So I right, know that that's like right now, I, I feel like, like I would love to go back to the 2017, 2018 timeframe, A, because the valuations were a lot lower, but you know, like when I was really like, hey, Charter, look three years out, five years out, IAC, you know, IAC was trading at a discount to the, the publicly traded match shares for a while. Like it, it, it was yeah. wild. Right now, I, I feel like a lot more, a lot more is catching these inflection points where, hey, this company has, especially with the SPAC mania, again, like if a company, some of the parts investing has a very tough rap for really good reasons. But right now, if you're a company that has a really high growth subsidiary, there's almost never been a better time to some of the parts invest because a SPAC will go and buy that thing for top, top notch dollar. So a lot of the stuff I've been looking at recently has been things that are like, hitting that inflection point and benefiting from the bubble. And, you know, we talked about Mike from Non-GAAP. I'm a huge fan of his. He like really opened my eyes to, hey, use equity comp and options as inflection points to to determine where, uh, to determine when this like might be accelerating into an inflection point or something. Yeah. Yeah. And to get a clue into management, right? And whether or not they're, you know, how they're sort of thinking. Because part of the issue that I think that you, you can run into in situations where there's a high growth sub is you got to have a management team that's willing to let it go, right? Yeah, yeah, th that's exactly right. Uh, you know, again, everyone has a sum of the parts story that they've been pitching for years and the sum of the parts just never close. And, you know, I think the thing I've lost the most money investing in um, is A, airlines before the pandemic, but B, would be companies that have really good assets, but have a controlled voting structure and just no desire to ever realize those, uh, to ever realize the value of those assets, hmm. right? Uh, a lot of times the management, it was founded by someone that that person passed away and now their son and daughters run it and they don't really care about the business, but they've got control and they can milk that business for all it's worth. And uh, you know, I, that's just a really tough way to keep losing money on some of the parts. But the interesting thing with this equity compensation angle or a lot of different angles is you can see right before they're ready to incentivize to turn on this value, you can see it in the 8K or there's a lot of other plays on that, but yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I've never, um, I don't know. I, I, I sort of am intrigued by some of the parts analysis, but I, I always have sort of had an aversion for the reason that you're saying. Like, I, I just need a, I need to be able to see why it's going to change. And to your point, I mean, I think Mike has done like a really good sort of service for the community telling people, you know, this is maybe a good way to read the tea leaves. Yeah, look, I thought I I thought I was ahead of people where, you know, I used to if a company would file an 8K and they would change their change of control, they announced a change or an update in their change of control comp, right? That's basically the golden parachute the CEO gets if the company sold. I thought I was ahead of the game because I'd read that and be like, oh, this company's about to run a sales process, right? Or huh, uh, yeah. Charter, they gave Tom Rutledge a, a pay package that, you know, it, it went all the way up to $600 per share and the stock was at $300, actually a lot less when they gave it to him. And I was like, hey, this is a, 
Tom Rutledge is a very respected CEO. They gave him this thinking this was achievable. And Mike, like, obviously opened my eyes to lots of different situations and ways that that situation could play out. But yeah, it's really eye-opening. IAC has been somewhat similar, right? In the way that they're incentivizing uh, Joey. Well, so yeah, so Joey has a lot of equity upside and stuff. But, you know, I think... I think he is more incentivized for long-term value creation, which is this, that's a lot of stuff that's very similar to Rutledge. Uh, but IAC Joey, if I remember correctly, his pay package runs him up to $600 per share on IAC. I don't think anyone thinks IAC is worth $600 per share right now, right? Yeah. Like, I think yeah. that is incentivizing, hey, if you compound this business at a reasonable rate, you should get to around $600 per share. But if you do better than that, you're going to get super rich off that $600 per share. So that is more a incentive to drive long-term value creation versus, you know, a lot of what Mike writes about is, hey, this company normally uh, gives equity options in March. They gave it in February this year. That's because they're about to blow out earnings and they wanted to get their yeah. strikes before before then. Yeah, no, that makes sense. <clears throat> how did you, when you started investing, so you came in from credit, how's your style morphed? Because, you know, lately, I mean, I, I since I've watched you, Charter, IAC, these are more of like, uh, you know, management teams that are highly respected and compounder types. Um, I guess IAC is sort of not really, I don't know that I would call it a compounder in a traditional sense, but Ooh. they definitely do compound wealth, right? And they <laughs> you're, definitely, you're going to sort of, I, no, I'm no, gonna well, tell, I'm going to tell modest proposal what you said, and you're going to no, have no, some no, 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 no. It's uh, I I am concerned that I am not being precise enough with my language with the identification of a compounder. Like they compound wealth, but they are like a build and spin machine, which is I think of as slightly different than like a traditional compounder. That's it's probably just terminology. We we would get to the same endpoint. I I want no wrath of modest. So uh, look like a charter and an IAC, you know, I, I think when you're, and I like to run a pretty concentrated book. And I think when you're looking at like something that you're going to put 20% of your book into for, you know, five years or something like that takes a lot of work and I'm happy to do a lot of work, you know, but you're only going to find one of those situations if you're lucky and the environment's right twice a year, just because the work precludes it. Right. Like, and this is a big yeah. thing I, I've tried to get better at. Like, you need to build the conviction in something, right? And the reason a lot of people, you know, uh, you need to build the conviction in something to hold it through, hey, it's up 10%, I'm gonna quickly sell this for a quick 10% gain. Hey, they announced some weak earnings, I'm gonna sell this because my thesis is broken or something, right? Like, you need to build that conviction because it might sound silly, but if you've got 20% of your portfolio in something and it's up or down 10% in the day, I promise you're gonna notice. And yeah. if you don't have the conviction, you're probably gonna make the wrong decision that day, right? Uh, so to do that, you need to build up conviction in this market. I'm just, I'm not finding a lot of that, uh, of those things that I can look out three to five years from now and kind of build a compounder on. Right. But I am finding a lot of special situations and special situations in general, you're going to size them smaller, but you can do a lot more of them. You can do a lot more of them frequently. And look, I'm just a guy, I, I'm just trying to, you know, swim wherever the action is taking me. And right now the action has taken me like. I just feel like there's so many special situations out there uh, that, that I'm really swimming. But, you know, I still want to find it. Like, look, at, nobody, we don't talk about it a lot, but I wrote up Angie last summer, especially when Facebook announced that uh, they were going to move into this. And Angie's stock was down, you know, it traded down to like $11. I said, hey, history rhymes. Match traded down to 30 when Facebook was moving into dating. Match is $150 stock right now. 
Angie, I, I don't know, it's at like 18. And obviously it's early because it's only been six or seven months. So we haven't seen a lot, but like history rhymes. And, you know, Angie was a compounder, a special situation. It was pretty interesting. Yeah, I, um, that business back when it was like traditional Angie's list and I was back in my flooring days, this is a while ago. But man, leads from that thing, <clears throat> now it's more of like a lead gen machine. But back in the day when it was just like a closed sort of, I guess a closed loop is the way that I'm thinking about it. That's probably not the right way to, to say it, but it was just like a subscription service. If you got a lead off that, you just like didn't even have to, there was not a competitive bid. You could basically walk in and price. Um, I know that that business has changed a lot since then, but sort of interesting to see how that asset has changed as it's sort of, you know, shifted hands and IAC is now doing their thing with it. Well, you know, I think, and maybe diving into Angie is a little beyond this present, but I do think Angie is interesting and instructive in like, you know, one of the things I'm trying to do to, to get better as invested, there's a couple things, but one thing is A, I'm trying to get over my, hey, I started buying this when it was at 10 and now it's at 15, so I, I can't buy anymore, right? That price mm -hmm. anchoring. But the other thing is like, I think when I started investing, I was like a deep value guy, right? I wanted to go buy things below price and net asset value, or I wanted to buy things at five times price earnings. And I think the big money has been made recently. Maybe this is sign of the market, maybe it's not. But the big money is made not by saying, hey, this trades at seven times price to earnings and I think it's trade for 10. But the big money is made by saying, hey, the trailing financials are irrelevant. The future of this thing is bright or, you know, it trades at 100 times last year's earnings, but it trades at 10 times three years out earnings and it trades at two times six years out earnings, right? And like with Angie's list, I think it's so instructive where you had this great team who is maybe the best marketplace investors in the world. And they were literally telling you, right? They were saying, hey, the trailing financials are crap. Our trends don't look that great. But guess what? We are the best marketplace investors in the history of marketplace investing. And we see all the signs that we've seen in prior successful marketplaces. Now, doesn't mean it's guaranteed, but we've got all the supply. And if you look at our history, or sorry, we've got all demand. If you look at our history, when we've got the demand, we will find a way to get the supply. We will find a way to monetize it. And they were out here screaming it to you. Uh, and, you know, Angie was sitting there in the marketplace was doubting them. And the early signs are it's kind of it kind of hit that inflection point. And it's kind of starting to gain a little a little steam. Do you think that um, part of like the lack of success of deep value is a lot of like the SPAC and private equity money floating around? I, I feel like a lot of these assets that I sort of would used to look at because I've I've sort of come the same uh, whatever journey, right. Where I, I thought deep value was the only answer. And now I'm, I'm a little more skeptical of all the deep value names that I look at. Cause I figure somebody else's diligenced them and passed on them. Um, which is, you know, maybe unfair, but I think it's also, there's some truth to it. What do you think of that? No, I, look, I, I think you hit the, I, I think you hit it right on the head. Uh, I think in the sixties and seventies, like markets were a lot more inefficient and this deep value stuff could work because nobody really knew how to read a balance sheet and it was more inefficient, but I think starting in the 90s and 2000s, like everything got picked over, right? There were all these private equity firms with tons of money. And if something traded below liquidation value, an activist stepped in and forced them to liquidate or a private equity firm stepped in, partnered with management team, bought this thing up, made a fortune. And it probably starting in like the 2012 to 2013 timeframe, anything that traded below net asset value, I like to say it traded below net asset value for a reason, right? Like there yeah. was the awful management team who they were just gonna loot they were just going to loot, 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 and everything would go to their pockets. Or 
you know, it said it was trading at half of book value, but if you marked book value to today's value, you know, it was trading for four times book value or something, right? So it was either an accounting issue or a management team that just did not care. Uh, yeah. So I think that got picked over. And, you know, I think one of the things is marketplaces get systems evolve, systems get harder and you have to evolve. And if all you want to do is buy things for below net asset value, you're probably not going to outperform these days. A computer can do that. You've got to kind yeah. of evolve with the times. Yeah. The nice thing about sort of the idea of the the past is irrelevant and the future is what matters is that requires a level of creativity that I don't think can be outsourced. I agree with you. Uh, yeah, I, it's it's got to be by definition somewhat more fragile, right? So I think you've got to be pickier as to what you can see um, or an investor can see. But I I do think that's like the human element that can't be replaced. I think there's a lot more. I agree with you. I think there's a lot more pattern recognition with it. You know, a computer yeah. can go recreate a price and an asset value, but a a computer can't recreate. Hey. Andrew's having all the supply and it's not hit their numbers yet. But if you look at the history of marketplaces, this is going to be successful. It can't recreate that. Uh, yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. What are some of the patterns that you sort of uh, are like naturally attracted to? Are there any? I like scale. Like I, I see everything through a scale lens, which and and also behavior. I, I look at a lot of stuff through a psychology lens, which pisses me off that I miss software because that was clearly a psychological element to it that i never which one pissed you off man software in general like i always i always got um i think it was because i was so tied up on current valuation rather than thinking about what it would be you know five ten years out and i was so um i i was just hung up on this you can't predict the future stuff but then i look at at even some of the software that i use today that's just garbage and my unwillingness to try something that's better, even this recording platform, right? I've had a couple problems on it. I really don't want to switch to a different one. Like yeah. I know this one, it's easy. Um, even if it's got problems, I'm not convinced that another one won't. So there's like a lot of psychology that I think if I had just opened my mind to, I, I could have seen, but I just wasn't willing to look through that lens. It, it was uh, stupid. No, I, I hear you. That plays... You know, I think the ones I, I like right now are really the ones where the optionality to I, I've called it leveling up in the past, you know, like a Twitter. You look at that and on a trailing financials, you're like Mark Zuckerberg called it the the clown car that fell into the gold mine or whatever. Right. But you would never buy this thing on trailing financials. But then you you look at it and you say, hey, this thing literally I, I mean, they banned Donald Trump and they kind of they deplatformed him and they completely changed like his power. Right. Like things are a lot different. And you look at the power of that platform and like the optionality around like, you know, I, I do the subscription service, but Twitter is how I get most of my subscribers and they make no money from that, right? Like there's so many different things that they could level up into. And, and I think that's super interesting. And then the other thing I've really been interested in recently, I, I tweeted this, but like, you know, the New York Times has, they grew digital subs 50% last year, right? To, I think it's 7 million subs. They grew by 50%. They've got the number two podcast and the number 21 podcast out there, right? And I think when somebody says New York Times to me, I just think, oh, newspaper, whatever. But, you know, yeah. if I told you, hey, here's a company that has people's credit card information and they're growing subs 50% year over year, and they've got two of the most popular podcasts out there. If that was a startup, what would that be valued at? Yeah. It, it might. I mean, that might be valued at $20 billion. And I do think uh, there's something really interesting in looking at, like, 
legacy businesses that had that have the potential to pivot into something interesting like uh you know look at what disney did right disney switching over to disney plus and using the power of those uh of all those platforms i just it's really interesting to imagine old world businesses and how they can pivot into something a lot more interesting in the future do you ever look at a uh, graham holding company i have looked at graham holding company you know speaking of grant Speaking of the incentives, uh, the CEO there has what I believe Warren Buffett called the the best incentive system out there. Um, yeah, I, I've looked at them a lot. You know, I, I think some of their venture bets. I, I, the the history does not suggest we're we're dealing with IAC when you talk about Graham. Yeah, I I sort of got interested in them because they had that podcast angle. I don't know if they still do. I ended. I up- think they sold. I think they sold their podcasting business for a big uh, a big premium actually. Yeah. What do you think is going to happen with podcasts? Like, what do you see going on in your own? Uh, this one seems to have like, uh, I don't want to say leveled out, but, um, you know, I, there's like a consistent sort of number that I think I know it can hit. Um, and it's been really fun. I don't know. I, I, there's no barrier to entry though. Right. And how do you, uh, well, for you know. and me, like hopefully above average guys like doing a podcast, I agree. Like, you know, there was no, my podcast started a month before your podcast, but there was no barrier to entry keeping you. But for like a Spotify, and I'm so angry. I, I was bullish on Spotify. I had a little position into him and I sold him like two days before the Joe, Joe Rogan thing. But you know, for Spotify, I do think there is something to, there's no barriers to entry to creating a podcast, but there is barriers to entry for Spotify. Like, the distribution, they're on everybody's homepage. They've got everybody's credit cards. Uh, there's going to be a lot of barriers to entry for the ad tech behind uh, behind podcasts. Like I've used this example before, but when uh, I listen to Bill Simmons' podcast every now and then, not like religiously, but I do enjoy him. And one of the ads on his would be, hey, if you're in one of these eight states, sign up for FanDuel, right? Because FanDuel was only huh. legal in eight states. And I would always listen to that podcast, and I wasn't in one of those eight states. And I'd be like, oh, well... They're they're paying to reach 50 states, but what they really want is for Spotify to come in and air that advertisement to people in those eight states and then air an adver- a different advertisement to people in the other 42 states, right? So I think there's going to be a lot of uh, barrier sentry on the ad tech behind dynamically inserting ads into these things and building up all of this different stuff. So uh, I-, I think the I think Spotify's got a great strategic position. I, I think... Uh, there's no barrier on the podcasting side, but on the podcast tech side, I think they've got a really nice barrier. Who do you host yours with? Is it with Anchor? Mine is hosted with Buzzsprout. Um, I don't know why I chose them. I think I just chose them randomly, but yeah, that's who I host it with. So I went with Libsyn. I was uh, because you were looking, looking at looking. the stock. No, no. I so I got interested in the stock a little bit because of how I got recommended into it. The guy that helps me with this, uh, Matthew Passy. I used him when we did the Rangely Capital podcast, and uh, I, I'd like to use him again. But right now, my podcast doesn't require that much editing. He said, "Yeah, he he said that Libsyn was a good place to host because you're not you don't pay per download, right? I only pay for what I upload. Yeah, so I can sort of control that a little bit better." Um, and then I got interested in Libsyn, and I don't know that I can quite get there on the stock, but um, I I don't know. A little while ago, it was definitely cheap. I, I did some I did some research into Libsyn and passed because I, I I'm a fool. But uh, you know my my thing with <laughs> Libsyn was it was the same thing you had right. Like I didn't understand the barrier to entry for uploading a podcast, and there is 
there is stickiness, right? Like I wouldn't want to switch my podcast hosts at this point. That, that seems like it would be tough, though. If they raise prices too far, I'm sure they could get me too. But I just looked at Lips and I was like, what's the need? Like it didn't feel like it was a super modi business. And yeah, I, I just had trouble with it. But obviously it's done well. And I know a lot of smart people who really like the like the business. They've got an activist involved, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know. I know nothing about the activists. I think though. that's right. And I think they have a, also have a lawsuit to cancel a bunch of shares that uh, yeah. I, I've heard from some people. They think it's a really interesting lawsuit. Yeah. So would that like sort of fit within your special situation? Uh, like you deem that, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I looked a little bit at the lawsuit, but I, I just I, I didn't get super comfortable with Lipson as a business. And that's another one, right? There was an activist, new management, all this. But I think one of the most consistently mispriced things in the market is companies that have big upside from a law from a lawsuit, because hmm. people like you and me ha- are, you know, probably the marginal buyer of most stocks. And most of and we can't do a lot of it's very difficult to do diligence, uh, a legal case. And like whenever I read one, I'll read both sides because, you know, they have to do filings and stuff. And lawyers are good, man. They, and I'll yeah. read both sides. I'll be like, oh, this seems like a 50-50 case. And then I'll bring it to a lawyer friend and they'll be like, oh, no, th- th- this company is just demolishing them in court. You know, so I, I think it's really tough because most of us don't have legal backgrounds. Due diligence, these things is different than valuing a company. And uh, it requires a lot of work to stay on top of them. And there just aren't many of them. You know, I think things that scale get priced out of the market pretty quickly. Diligencing legal things does not scale. So I think it's very difficult to uh, price that out. Yeah, well, yeah. And to your point, even if you do have the competence, it's still, I mean, if it goes in front of a judge, you're still playing a probability game. Uh, it's very, very hard to get an attorney to tell you, yes, I know this is going to happen, right? I don't disagree with you, but let me give you an example that was like kind of in real time last year. So the former TiVo, it merged into a business called uh, Xperi. X-P-E-R is the ticker. And they had this lawsuit, uh, you know, TiVo, they license all of their uh, all of their technology. They've got patents on everything that has to do with a DVR, right? And Comcast, who is the biggest provider of DVRs in the country, played hardball with them and said, we don't want to pay your licensing fees. So TiVo sued them and all of their trailing financials, uh, you know, the Comcast thing was a double whammy because not only were they not getting the money they would normally get from Comcast, which is super high margin, right? Licensing pot. But they actually had the expenses of these huge legal fees for suing Comcast, right? And they had mm-hmm. it for years. And this was like a four-year thing. And they would say, hey, we're really confident in this. But nobody gave them any credit for it. And uh, mm-hmm. nobody gave them any credit. And it was probably a ding because most people value things on EV to EBITDA or something. And, you know, their EBITDA included a lot of these legal expenses. But if you went and looked, everyone had licensed this technology, right? Including Charlie Ergen, Dish's CEO, who if you've ever heard any stories in telecom, Charlie Ergen does not license things freely, right? Like he agreed to pay this because he looked at the patent and he looked at everything. He said, oh shit, if I don't license this, I'm gonna get rolled over in court. So nobody gave them any credit for it. And then one day, you know, I think it was with Q3 earnings, they announced, hey, we settled with Comcast. We're gonna get $200 million plus they're gonna pay us a fee going forward. And the stock's up 50%. And if you had done like the work on this company, you saw like, yeah, it's probably not 100% they're going to win the Comcast thing, but everything around this everything around this set of uh, patents was telling you they're pretty likely to win this deal. But the market yeah. was giving them zero credit for it because it's a one-off. It doesn't go into the numbers easily. It actually pings their trailing numbers. So, you know, I, I think that that's one that played out. And, uh, hmm. you know, it, I, I was on it, but not in big enough size. But, you know, I think that's just one example of the type of things that uh, 
can get overlooked because they're one-off and they're legals. Do you think that part of what like TiVo uh, suffers from too is people's perception is that it's just this old company and there aren't that many people that are really willing to put the time in to dig into the patents? Like, is it over? Do you think that there's a complication factor there, or do you think the market's smart enough to sort of ferret that? Oh out? yeah, I think there's definitely a complication factor. People would hear TiVo, and look, I do think the best bear argument I heard was TiVo had this uh, the suit against Comcast for years. And they agreed to merge in a stock for stock merger with uh, Xperia, who was another patent company. And I think the best bear case was, hey, if they had so much upside from the Comcast case, why did they agree to a stock for stock merger? Why wouldn't they hold out for the Comcast thing? And I, I don't particularly have a great answer for that. But yeah, I think there were, you know, it, it happens all the time. People get stuck in their head. Hey, I can't look at Q rate because I got burned on it at 20 when the merger they announced with uh HSN wasn't very good and that's a dying business and I don't want to look at it. Uh, I definitely think you can get those things and there's often opportunities if you can kind of bring a fresh lens to it. Hmm. Yeah. I, I, when I looked at TiVo, I was just kind of, um, I don't know. I dug into the, to the K a little bit. And then honestly, I was just kind of like, I'm not going to be able to figure this stuff out. Uh, and maybe that was, I, I don't know how silly that was. The opportunity cost probably wasn't that high of me passing on that, but I, it was in the too hard pile. No, look, I'm with you. And I think that is one thing with a lot of these legal situations, right? You have to, you size them small because they're attached to TiVo, which you might not love the business. And like, you might have confidence on the legal case, but you might have a lot of uh, question marks around the other thing. So I was just more using it as an example where yeah, yeah, yeah. the market wasn't pricing in anything for this Comcast lawsuit. And if you had done any work on it, it was pretty clear that they were very likely to win. And when they did, the business would look a lot different. That makes sense. Let me ask you a question since you just commented on this. The smaller the size, right? Do you think that, have you gone back and seen uh, to the extent like, does that drag on performance? Do you think, I'm struggling with it right now is really the question that I'm asking you is to solve my own head. Because part of me is saying, you know, there's a couple ideas. Naked Wines is one that I've said that I'm long. And, you know, I'm not fully there on it. Um, I think that, the valuation given like to what I think it could be in five years uh, is pretty inexpensive relative to the potential. But I also think that there's some real problems that I'm not fully sold on with the consumer adoption. And part of me is like, well, you know, is it worth a 2% bet or a one and a half percent bet? Or should I just like put that capital into a better idea like Liberty Broadband? Obviously, none of this financial advice. Um, But like, I I have a sense of what I think is like Liberty Broadband, I think is a lot more sound from an execution standpoint. The upside, I think is much smaller, but you know, the downside probably, well, I don't know. It's I don't know what the downside is in Naked. I think it's trading relatively close to replacement cost. If it's worth replacing, which I think is, uh, you know, a question people can debate. So was the question small? In terms Sorry, of- I just rambled. No, 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 no. I love it. I love it. And look, Naked Wines, A, uh, I passed on it several years ago, and I still have a box of Naked Wines sitting in my, my WeWork office that I haven't been to in a year because of COVID. Uh, but look- Elliot, uh, Elliot Turner, who I think gave most of us the idea. I had looked at it two years ago. Anything Elliot pitches, I'm like, Elliot is super smart. I want to take a dive into it. And I just couldn't go back into it because that stock has run. But were you asking small in terms of small company size or small in terms of small position size? No, position size. 
Uh, you know, I, I think it depends. I like to run concentrated, uh, but I, again, it depends if you're doing compounder versus special situations. I think special situations, you need to kind of blend those out a little bit more, more eventy type stuff, because, uh, you know, if you're, if you're betting on a spin or something like that, that's it, it's an event, but there's still some value questions and stuff. Whereas if you're betting on cable, just taking over the world, I think you can get pretty comfortable in that thesis and, uh, kind of ride that out. I don't know. Because, I mean, Greenblatt, like, he was concentrated and special situation, right? Which is like... Greenblatt, look, Greenblatt's interesting. I, I think in a lot of ways, to bring it back to my number, the person who I'm the number one stand for, Mike, uh, I think Greenblatt, he identified events that nobody was looking at properly, and he identified incentives. You know, the famous one is the Malone with Liberty Media, and he bought up all the rights. Uh, and he, he concentrated. He saw something that was mispriced, and he swung really really freaking hard at it right and it was mispriced but he had everything aligned right like if you think about liberty media it it was what turned out to be a great business right cable channels great business all-time manager and the all-time manager was pouring as much of his net worth as humanly possible into this thing right yeah. and like when i think about something charter charter was a historically stable business but one that people thought was not good because of video which all, me and a lot of other people thought hey, this is actually a great business when it becomes broadband, 95% margins, huge cash flow. No one's ever going to cut it. So it's got great pricing power, right? So when you think about Charter, it was, hey, this is a business people think is an average business that's actually becoming a great business run by a great manager and a great capital allocator who's going to become a billionaire if he hits his target. So he's super incentivized. So you had all these things lining up and you could make a huge swing into it. Whereas, you know, Naked Wines, I'll leave aside for a second, but something like TiVo, which I described earlier, right? so-so business patent trolls a lot of people don't like it i don't super love patent trolls but you had this great legal angle it was really cheap they bought back a lot of shares so you probably can't swing as hard at that as a comcast but you could probably build a basket of those things and do pretty darn well yeah in a non-correlated way right yeah yeah because look theoretically the comcast suit right they they won it in november but you know they just as easily could have won it in april and the stock probably would have been off even though the whole market was melting down because of the pandemic yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting. Like I, you know, you talk about starting out in deep value. I'm, I'm, you know, I think back to the person that I was when I first read sort of like Buffett and what I thought he was saying. And it's like so embarrassing. I, I wish me now could talk to me then, but you know, this is sort of the classic mistake of, uh, you know, you're, you're smart too late. And I'm still working on getting smarter, but, um, you know, like I messed around with like Cleveland cliffs. I mean, I still do like that CEO. I love that guy. That guy cracks me up, but, um, it's just not the kind of business that you can like really own. I don't think, and make like real money on, right. You can make some money on a re-rating or whatever. Yeah. Look, and I think this applies to, are you, are you buying into cyclicals versus compounders, right? Because if you're buying to cyclicals, what you're, what you're looking to do is buy them, you know, at the bottom of the cycle and then flip them at the top of the cycle pretty much, right? Like, and that's a generalization because there are some, most people would consider home builders cyclicals, but there are some home builders that have done incredibly over time. But, you know, if you're doing cyclicals, you just need to know what you're there for. You're not there for this thing to, you know, g compound EBITDA and be a platform and sell this thing yeah. for 24 times in 10 years. You're looking to sell it for a 50% gain in four months when oil prices go up or something. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I do have to ask you, because uh, I know you're obsessed with it, where are you at on cruise lines? Yeah, so <laughs> cruise line, look, I, 
Cruiser's going to cruise, man. So I specifically focus on cruise lines because uh, for people who don't follow me on Twitter, in April there was an article and it was interviewing people. And it started with, I think it was Norwegian. And their CEO said, look, I know a lot of you uh, read stories about people trapped on cruise ships for 45 days and COVID's just running like crazy through the cruise ship and think, oh, these people will never cruise again. But actually, our research shows that those people say Norwegian Cruise Lines is a great cruise ship and I can't wait to go on another cruise. And I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe this. And then so that was the thing that brought me in. And then at the end of this article, there was a quote from a woman who said, I'm I'm addicted to cruising like a rat is addicted to cocaine. Like, I just can't wow. stop. Wow. And I saw this and I was like, oh my God, I can't believe that. I Like, just the passion for cruising was, was what attracted me to this. Like, people could be trapped on ships, stuck at sea, COVID running through it, and they were so like, I, I've just got to get my buffet ice cream. I, I, I can't turn this down. <laughs> so uh, anyway, fast forward today. So, you know, in December, I was doing all these tweets because especially after the vaccine, bump like you know the cruise line stocks were down on the year but if you looked adjusted for all the equity they raised all the debt they raised and stuff they were actually trading at enterprise values equal to or higher than the start of 2020 so the market was looking at these and saying hey ignore all the i mean the a cruise line it's not like you know a movie theater there's some depreciation but if you mothball that like it's not like it's just falling apart a cruise ship sits in salt water. It is getting eaten alive. And they have to have crew members on it, even when they're not running. So cruise lines were burning hundreds of millions of dollars of cash every year. So the market was leading then saying, ignore the cash burn, ignore the disaster, ignore the fact that it's going to take years for the cruise industry to return. The cruise industry is more valuable today than it was at the start of the pandemic. And I was looking at this and saying, I, I, I just can't understand how this could be possible. AMC, even before the Wall Street bets fueled thing, you know, AMC's enterprise value, because they had to raise a lot of money. They they have lease operating leases, right? So yeah, their assets are depreciating, but they have to pay their landlords and stuff. And I was looking at it and saying, oh my God, like this company is going through an existential crisis. Wonder Woman 1984 is coming out on streaming. Disney is not going to release a Disney movie into theaters when COVID's running rampant. And they're going to have, hey, mommy and daddy took the kids to see Little Mermaid 2 and mommy died because she caught COVID <laughs> in the theater. Like Disney's not. Releasing- that would mess up your uh, mental association with Disney. <laughs> yeah, they're not releasing movies since that. And by the way, even if they would, like if capacity is limited to 25 percent, movie yeah. theaters can't make a profit. Uh, movie companies aren't going to release. It, it was just a disaster. And AMC's enterprise value was higher than it started the year. At. And I was looking at these. and I was like. You know, you can run any assumptions on these. It it doesn't make any. It just doesn't make any sense that these things would be valued like this. And I've I've tried to look at it a lot of different ways. You know, I, I think there is something to hey, a cruise line is an operating leverage business, and when people can go back to cruising, you know, like my first vacation when I post COVID, you can see how ridiculous my hair has gotten. But first, I'll get a haircut, and then I'll go. Uh, I'll go on a vacation. Like yeah, I'll probably like spend a little more than I normally would. So. If you're a cruise shipper who who's a rat addicted to cocaine and you haven't been able to go on a cruise ship in two years, yeah, you'll probably buy a couple extra drinks and pay for a premium packing stuff. So you'll get a little boost in profitability. But the market was looking at something much beyond that to value these things there. So I just grew obsessed with valuation. You know, I, I still think the cruise ships, you know, cruise ships, AMC, they are selling equity at paces you wouldn't believe. And I think that's because they look and they say, hey, we're on death's doorstep. Our equity price is a really attractive way to raise money. Um, you know, I personally think all the stocks will probably drift down over the near to medium term because they're just really buoyed by this, hey, reopening play. But I think they're misinterpreting just, you know, 
how slow the reopening is going to be and how much expense to get there and stuff. But it's just a really interesting, uh, really interesting group of companies. I've uh, I've felt sort of similarly about airlines. The cruise actually, the cruises in retrospect are one of the dumbest tweets I made in March uh, of 2020 because my mom has a financial advisor and this is like pre bailout or anything. And she really can't afford to take like real risk. And she asked the guy for a stock tip and he was like, Oh, you should buy Royal Caribbean. And I was livid at the suggestion, given what I thought her risk tolerance should be. And I said, like, I want to go punch this guy. And meanwhile, it's up like three, four X or whatever, since he said uh, to buy it. You know, so the, it is interesting. So I think the thing I miss most of the pandemic at the end of March, I thought every travel company and every restaurant and every hotel, maybe not the hotel companies, but every travel company and every restaurant in America was going to go bankrupt. Right. Because I looked at these and like, you know, you know, with airlines, hey, the airlines are effectively going to be operating at. 25% capacity for the next year. And for a while, it's going to be 0% capacity, right? And these things have huge operating leverage. They've got huge debt burdens. I looked at it and I was like, there's no freaking way that these things are not going to be able to file. They have to restructure. And, uh, you know, it's thanks to, I think, a lot of government support, a lot of Fed, but the market took a much longer view, right? And I never doubted that, hey, the airlines, you know, three years from now, they're worth 10 times EBITDA or something like that, right? I, I'm just pulling a number off my head. Yeah. But what I doubted was these things were 6X levered, and I doubted that the market would look and say, well, there's four terms of equity three year, below that three years from now, so we'll let them raise equity or whatever. I thought all of these things were going to have to refile, and I thought all of them were going to go bankrupt. You look at a lot of these restaurant stocks, you know, like uh, Chipotle has benefited a lot because, you know, that's fast casual. People are can take it out. But a lot of these restaurant companies that are currently reporting zero sales, not like flat same store sales. They're literally reporting zero sales and their stocks are barely budged because the, the market feels perfectly comfortable looking out two years into the future and saying, oh yeah, we'll value that you on that. And I just didn't think the market would do that because these businesses needed capital, right? Like yeah. all these businesses run negative working capital. And I, I don't think anybody ever ran in their model, hey, what if a restaurant isn't allowed to operate for four months, right? So they needed capital just to fund that working capital and one. I just didn't think that the markets would uh, would give them the capital to fund. Cruise ships, same thing. I, you know, and a lot. I don't think the cruise lines thought they were going to survive because they were selling equity at rates you wouldn't believe at the absolute bottom. But I, I didn't think they survived, and uh, the market took a much longer view than I, I thought it kind of would. Yeah, uh, that's something that Modest has said in the past. You know, like I think I think it was almost a year ago or so that I mean now it's almost COVID, but. Where he had said, like, you know, the, the market looks way longer. You know, I never understand that people say that it's short term. And I think that once the liquidity crisis was taken off the table, that thesis was pretty much proven. The thing that I, like, missed, it, he and I even DM'd, uh, I don't do it often with him, but we were uh, around then, or maybe April, and we were talking about Gavin Baker saying that, like, there's a point in the cycle when you have to do what's really uncomfortable and I just was never willing to rotate into sort of like the riskier stuff. It it worked out like fine. I'm I'm uh I'm not mad at myself or anything. I, I was more concerned with making sure that I survived for my family uh, than like really making some hero call. But in retrospect, I probably should have done that. But no, I don't I, know. I'm just mad because like you know, I, I just think the returns could have been better. So like something like 
like air cap i was very big into for a long time and i, I basically sold it at the bottom because i was like if every if every airline company goes bankrupt which i, I thought they all would air cap goes bankrupt too like who's going to need all these planes there's going to be plane overruns and like the the right play and it's very easy in hindsight and i don't think air cap was the one i would have done but like I held on to my charter shares, right? And I yeah. I am a charter stand. You can read all my research, but like at the bottom of the cycle, the answer is not to be in like charter. You know, the answer is to be go there were a lot of businesses that I love that I thought were gonna survive. So like some of the mall companies, you know, a lot of people look at mall companies mm. and say, Oh, these are these are zeros, but some of them own great assets and a lot of them look super leveraged, but all the debt is on the malls and like so Mace Rich for a while. I, I did an analysis at the bottom and I was like, hey, if you look at their non-core assets that they have no debt on, it covers the stock price right now, right? And they don't have that much corporate debt. So you could buy this thing for like, you know, they, they have like the apartment building next door to the mall, right? So they own that and they have no debt on that. If you value that and some other stuff, like I could get to $5 per share, which is where the share price was saying. So you were getting a free call option on all of their other malls, which some of these malls put put up huge number. You're getting a free call option and the stock's like a triple since then, right? The answer was yeah. not to be in charter. It was to be going to find like kind of more, I, I'm just throwing Mace Rich out, but it was more interesting yeah. situations like that. Well, Simon Property Group, I re- like David, he came out of pocket. I think it was at like 55 bucks a share. I don't know where it is right now, but I mean, I, I when I saw him make that buy, I probably should have said like, oh, I should check that out. Um, but I don't know, man, to be honest, even with Charter going into March, I was thinking, how are people going to service their cable bill? Like, I didn't know in the very beginning, I didn't know what the heck the world was going to look like. I've never seen an economy stop. And I didn't buy more. I didn't sell, thankfully. But I would be lying if I didn't say that that debt did sort of worry me in the beginning. Uh, so I had people who who told me that, like, hey, what if people can't pay their cable? And, and to me, the answer was like, look, if you've got the whole if you if you're worried about charter solvency or you're worried about people not paying their like we're talking about something different. Right. Like, just, yeah, that's right. Just go. Then by, you're talking about a meltdown. Yeah. Go go buy guns, because not gun stocks. Go buy guns because we're about to, you know, <laughs> we're, we're going into the apocalypse time. So to me, that wasn't the concern. Like and, and you saw this with Congress. If things get bad enough, they're just going to start mailing checks to people. So. Yeah. To me, the the more, yeah. So I I always felt pretty good about charter. I didn't think like the whole world was going to melt down, but I, I definitely heard it from people, um, and it, it, it was nerve wracking for a while for sure. But to me, like the the better cases were like something like match, right? So when yeah. I, when I got my IAC sent the match shares, I I sold them pretty quickly because I was like, we're in a pandemic, nobody's going to meet up in person. Like you know, I met my wife from a, a match competitor, but. Uh, it's like nobody's going to meet up in person. Like this could break network effects, right? Because the whole reason you go on Tinder is because everyone else is on Tinder. Well, if nobody uses yeah. Tinder for six months, that opens up the opportunity for a Tinder competitor to grab all the people when they start coming back on. But, you know, I think the opportunity was in things things like Match where, hey, people still want to make that connection. That network effect doesn't get broken. Yeah, I think I think that's right. But I don't think that you were – I mean, I think those are the type of concerns that you need to be thinking about when you're in – those kind of businesses, especially since it's all an intangible asset anyway, right? It's not as if, you know, something like Chenier, for instance, for those that don't know, it's like a natural uh, gas exporter importer, like those assets can't be replaced. So if if that's ever going to happen again, it's got to happen through those terminals and maybe a couple others. But fundamentally, like that asset base is strong. Network effects are, by definition, uh, you know, theoretically more more tenuous, yeah. Right? I mean, they can unravel. And, 
and you know, COVID, and this is one of, I thought a lot of the network effects would get broken. You know, like I think of something like Yelp has much looser network effects, but I thought of something like Yelp, like the biggest effect they have is similar to Google. Like when you go Google, a big moat for them is the ingrained habit of typing in google.com to go search for something, right? If you didn't search for six months, it's possible Bing could lure you over because they could create that habit in some form, right? For Yelp, I was really nervous. Like the big thing for Yelp is when you want to go to a restaurant on a Friday night, you open up Yelp, right? And that's an ingrained habit. Well, if you don't go to a restaurant for nine months, I was really concerned that you might just switch over to Google Maps for the review or something, right? You've broken that habit. And a lot of these companies kept that network effect and people kept using them a lot better than I would have thought at the beginning of the pandemic. That was actually uh, not not that uh, I thought Starbucks would be in trouble, but and I still sort of struggle like mentally with the equity valuation with Starbucks. But I was concerned and sort of do remain so. But I, I also am open to the idea that Asia is such a big opportunity. It may not matter, but um, that, you know, people I know a fair amount of people that invested more money than I ever thought they would in an at home coffee maker. And. I've seen the comps on Starbucks are are pretty strong, actually, relative to where I thought they would be. I still sort of don't trust it. We'll see what happens when there's like other legitimate dining options that are open and it's not like a drive through world um, because it's I just think about myself and my friends habits and we're all making a whole lot more coffee at home. But, you know, um, things have reverted much quicker than I thought they would that. That was a mistake on my part. One of the most interesting ones is like you know, Peloton right now, right? Or, or and yes. New York Times it falls. Oh, let's too. talk about this so for I, sure. I, I've been obsessed with Peloton. A because I, I got a Peloton and I love it, and I wish I had gotten one when the stock came out because I wrote a a bearish note, which I did not short it or anything. A thank goodness would be I would never short a, a, a high NPS growth company like Peloton. Uh, but I wrote a bearish note when it came out. I was like ten billion dollars for this. Look at the unit account. It's no freaking chance. But you know, now uh, I really appreciate how passionate the user base is, how great the brand is and stuff. But now there is a big question, right? Like everyone is working out at home on their Peloton. When things yeah. reopen, you know, me, I, I like to lift weights more than I like to cycle. Am I going to keep using the Peloton so much or am I going to switch a lot of it back into the uh, to the gym? I would guess like, you know, the Peloton, it's in my house now. It wasn't in my house a year ago. I would guess I'm going to stick with a lot of the Peloton. So it, it's interesting, like, how does that habit change going to the gym, getting Starbucks in the morning, all this type of stuff? Dude, my wife, we're building a house and she's like, well, do we need a room for your Peloton? And I was yes. like, no, we don't know. We don't need it. So what dedicated are you talking room. about, Bill? Of course you need a Peloton <laughs> no. room. No, we don't need to design a house around a Peloton. But it was a legitimate question that we had, right? And I was, I said, no, I can just go out to the garage or something and use it. Like, that's not the end of the world. And look, at Peloton, I, I've looked at it at this valuation. It, it's tough for me to want to get excited about it. But you do look at it and you say, hey, think about how good the brand is. And I, I, I laid this out, but like, it's a, 50, it's a $40 billion brand, right? Peloton's going to have an apparel brand to it, right? The instructors are wearing yeah. Peloton every like. They're going to build a $20 billion apparel business out of that that thing and stuff. And like, you just think about all the ladder up opportunities from something that has your credit card, has a great NPS and that people use basically every day. I, I, I mean, it's just incredible. How do you think like when you're thinking about that and we're not talking about the stock, just business wise, how do you think like when Lululemon buys Mirror, how, like does that uh, impact anything for you or not really? 
so it's something I've been thinking about a lot lately, right? Like, so I did a premium post and to bring it back all to the specs. And this is a premium case study I put on the website so people can go look. But there was this company called Worthington, right? And they're a former employee of theirs uh, started up Nikola. And because he started up Nikola, they made a $2 million investment into Nikola. And when Nikola went public through the SPAC, that $2 million investment was worth $1 billion, right? Uh, it was the literal investment of a lifetime, right? That's one of the best investments of all time. Um, so they've got a couple other small equity investments on their books. And you look at that and you say, well, they, they just turned a $2 million venture capital investment into a billion dollars. How do I think about those small equity investments on their book? Do I value that cost? Do I value that zero? Or do I treat it like, you know, you're not going to treat it like a 10, $10 billion investment, but do I just put a little bit of room in my numbers for there to be a call option on that? And I think the right answer for Worthington is no, Nicola was a former employee, complete luck. You know, there's all this stuff around Nicola. And one of the things we didn't talk about with SPACs is, uh, we should talk about it in a second, but the due diligence and the level of uh, craziness that's going on there. But, you know, I, I don't think you'd give them any benefit for that. But something like IAC, right? They've done it 20 times before. When yeah. they buy care.com, most people are going to throw care.com on their balance sheet for, I think they paid $400 million for it. They're going to throw it on for $400 million. I don't think that's right. I think you look at it and you yeah. say, hey, the best marketplace investor in the world just bought this business. Maybe I put a little bit of upside on that. Or, you know, yeah. when, when I value all 10 of their equity investments and the all 10 of them are worth a billion dollars at cost, probably value that at $2 billion just because three of them are going to pop. And, you know, I don't know, but it's very, maybe you don't do that, maybe you do, but it's very tough to kind of think about that. And it's one, th one thing I've been debating a lot. I don't know where we're going. I, I'm just kind of rambling over here. No, I think that, I think that's true. Um, I, I think care.com is a very interesting asset in the IAC world. Um, I, the one thing that's really like shocking to me about IAC is they have like the random publishing assets. Right. And, and like Wikipedia is so not what I associate them or not, uh, or investopedia rather. Yeah. Yeah. My bad. Wrong, wrong pedia. Um, but it is like a really good asset. It's, it, it's, it may not generate like a ton of growth or whatever, but when you think about like that webpage has been around forever and remains like very evergreen. Uh, they're very good at creating the evergreen content. When I got interested in them was when, uh, I mean, one seeing modest tweet about them. I think you're an idiot. If you're not like, if modest is like consistently pounding the table on any management team and you don't at least open your mind to it, I think you're probably doing yourself a disservice. Um, not investment advice. That's thinking advice. Um, but, uh, then Kara Swisher did an interview, uh, with the guy that turned around and asked Jeeves. Yep. And I thought that that was a really interesting interview. I liked how they thought, and then, you know, like Barry Diller's the man. So. Yeah. And, and look, Dot Dash isn't going to like change anyone's world though. I do know some, I, I think, uh, it's it, Mule on uh Twitter. He, he runs the Mule Substack, which I love, but he treated that's the asset he's most excited about. It's not the asset I'm most excited about, but you know, I, I think it just shows these guys like. IAC, they put the incentive structure in place. They put smart, talented people into internet and marketplace companies. And some of them are going to strike out, but some of them are going to be hits. And some of them are going to be unexpected hits like Dot Dash, you know? So, yeah. How much of your, um, like, when you do something, do you sort of go out and talk to other people about sentiment and stuff? Very, very little, I would say. You know, and it, it's something. I have trouble with. So I get lots of emails from people like, Hey, have you seen this sell side note? And the answer is almost always no. Like, you know, it, I think sell side, they are sharp guys, but 
you know, I, I do think part of investing is you need to have a differentiated view on something. And I think if you're reading a lot of sell side notes, like it's not that there's an issue with it, but what you read is eventually what you think. And I think if you're reading a lot of sell side notes, eventually that's going to be how you think and you're going to have a sell side mindset. And like not to not to dunk on sell side people because I like a lot of them, uh, but you know, they're on the sell side for a reason. And the reason is they can tell a good story, but they probably aren't out there generating alpha. And I think if you want to do that, you need to be thinking for yourself a little bit. So, you know, if they're smart guys, like if I'm, if you're interested in curate and I'm trying to get up to speed, I'll probably send you a note. But in general, I try to develop all my thoughts myself and especially with sentiment, right? Sentiment goes back to if somebody's saying sentiment's really bad or really good, it's probably because of the price and they're probably doing a lot of price anchoring there, right? So I'd almost yeah. rather like do my work get bullish on a company, not look at their chart or anything, and then, you know, decide, hey, if this is at 10, I'm going to buy it because I think it's worth 33 years from now, and then be surprised when I look at the price and see what it is. Can uh, can we talk real quick about how you're like TB12 of investing and when you posted all of like your reading, like when you did that public accountability thing, right? What did you say that you tried to do a 10K a day, right? Or something like that. And like when you posted that, I thought that was awesome. Do you still post that publicly? No, I don't. Is that a thing that you did a little? I don't post it publicly anymore. You know, it was. uh, I'm probably only doing a 10k every two days at this point because there's other stuff. But uh, it it really stopped during the pandemic. To be honest with you, I I was looking at so many different things so quickly, and like things were moving so quickly. And that's one of the funny things the pandemic taught me. Like, you know, if you read a 10k for a company that would have literally published in February on February 15th, 2020 and you read it in early April, it was almost meaningless, right? Like yeah. you're reading the cruise line 10 Ks in early April. I was like, okay, cool. The company made $4 billion in 2019, but none of their boats are selling right now. Right. So it is interesting. Like, I feel like I go in waves with it. Like sometimes like all I want to do is read 10 Ks. And then sometimes like, you know what, obviously you've got to look at the 10 K, but it's almost better to be reading other things. So I, I kind of go in waves with that. Well, I guess what I was really referring to is I like how you set out your like it was like a public accountability mechanism, yeah, I thought, yeah. when you posted what you what you tried to do to your like every day to make yourself better. I thought that was a very cool move. Yeah, and it's it's one thing, uh actually I have this in my notes. Like I you know, I think as investors you're always trying to get better. And I, I have wondered like when do investors peak? You know, Tom Brady, he's forty three and he, he's still peaking apparently. But <laughs> I, I would bet most investors peak in their late thirties to early forties would be would be my guess. And like how do you improve your process? I'm I'm still thirty-two, like that would mean I probably peak in five or six years. Like, how do I improve my process? How do I get to the best version of myself when I'm at my peak? And uh, you know, I again it, it's about building conviction. Like one thing that I'm trying to do is when I find something I think it's really interesting, how do I do enough work and make sure that I'm good enough and competent enough for my skills so that I can swing really hard when the right opportunity comes, because you don't get a lot of the opportunities. And when you do, like, if you don't swing hard enough, that's the worst thing you can do to your portfolio. You know, like buying, buying something and having to be down 80% sucks, but buying, you know, Apple and putting 1% of your portfolio into it in 2020 in 2000, instead of 10% of your portfolio, like that's where you really messed up. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I've gone uh, back and forth on this. I I I still don't know the concentrated method of running a book is the thing that uh resonates the most with me. Now, anyone listening to this would say, "Well, why do you have a small position in Naked Wines?" Part of the reasons I actually like the product and I like the company and I it's, it's my money, so I can do that. If I was running a fund, I don't know if that I don't think that would right like hit my hurdle as to what I could put in yet. Um 
But that's, uh, I do also, like, I've studied David Gardner and these guys, like, Matt Cochran, I talk to a fair amount, and he's helped me sort of understand, like, the Motley Fool method of, like, letting your winners grow. The interesting thing is you get to the same place of concentration eventually, right? Like, the guy that runs it, David Gardner, that guy, like, if you bought Amazon super young, it's probably a huge part of your portfolio now, right? And like, he actually seems to re-recommend things as they go higher. Either way, I think you end up getting pretty concentrated in your best ideas. It's just a matter of whether or not they grow into it or whether or not it's at cost. Yeah, but look, if you get concentrated in Amazon because you put you know, 1% of your net worth into them in 1995, like, great, you, you, you did really well, but like, the life changing is when you put a significant amount of your portfolio into something early and then it becomes the Amazon or something. Right. Yeah. So I, I mean, again, it's, if you run a hundred one percent positions and one of them is Amazon, like you're going to do really well, but the way you kind of really outperform is you run 10, 10% positions and one of them is Amazon or something. Yeah, I think that's right. The other thing is they really run a subscription business. That's a cash cow. I mean, at its core, that's what they really run. Right. Yeah. And then- yeah sort of their their methodology is the way to sell the subscriptions as someone who runs a subscription service i'm never going to dunk on another one but i do wonder like with the motley fool you know there you do run into the issue of hey if i pitch 10 stocks today and 10 stocks tomorrow like yeah one of them's going to be amazon and you know there's a there's a former value investor who's now running a, a very popular subscription newsletter and once a week he'll come on and he'll say hey i called this stock i dumped it right i called it right at the bottom and he'd be like yeah, but you did five calls that week and that's the only one you're shouting out. So you do yes. run into that and issue. You also shut down because you felt like you underperformed. So that's interesting. I, I wasn't mentioning anyone, anyone by name. I don't think did, we haven't named a, a single person. Everybody else can guess who it is that we're talking about. So uh, on the back of that, let's talk about SPAC due diligence. What's going on there? Yeah. So look, I, I think... Okay, so a SPAC, we, we talked earlier about how the, the SPACs uh, are really attractive from the IPO, from a risk-reward perspective, if you're buying them close to trust all this. You know, the issue is the real magic comes, the founders put up, you know, if it's $200 million SPAC, they put up $8 million of what's called risk capital. And if the deal fails, that $8 million is gone, right? That goes to cover the banking fees, all that sort of stuff. But if the deal succeeds, that $8 million is going to turn into Again, the numbers can vary, but it basically 20% of the company. And if you think about, you know, a 200 million IPO, if they get 20% of the company, that $8 million is turned into 40 or $50 million, right? And if the stock's a screamer, that 40 or $50 million is a double or triple, you know, a lot of these people are making hundreds of millions of dollars on that, right? But the issue is you have to do a deal and you have to get a deal done and they've got a certain amount of time before they liquidate. So what happens is as the easy SPAC targets go away, uh, you're encouraged to do deals quickly. You're encouraged to do deals that other people wouldn't do, maybe pay top dollar or maybe just ignore things in due diligence. And, you know, I think we've seen a lot of shenanigans here. So uh, last week there was a short report on Clover, right? That was uh, Chamath's, I think it was IPOC was the SPAC. Uh, they had a DOJ investigation outstanding that they didn't disclose in their SPAC process. And the short seller revealed it. And then the company comes out and confirms and says, yes, we, we had this, but we didn't feel like we need to disclose it. They said Chamath was aware of it. I don't know. Like, was he aware of it or did he just, did he see a sexy yeah. story and he took a public? Like, it's tough to say. 
I don't know, but I've never seen a company have a DOJ investigation and feel like they can go public without disclosing it. You look at Nikola, right? We talked about Nikola earlier. Nikola went public because they were a sexy EV story and all this sort of stuff, and they had this product. And it turned out their product was they took a truck and they literally rolled it down the hill. And they said it was a working prototype, but all they did was roll a truck down a hell and they didn't have a working prototype. Or, you know, there was Triteris, T-R-I-T, which went public and it was the Bitcoin. I think they called it the blockchain of trading finance or something, right? And then a short report comes out and like the company they bought it from, originally they were going to buy the parent, but the parent was about to go bankrupt. So they just bought this company and the parent was like all of their revenue and all this sort of stuff. And they didn't disclose any of this in the process. And I think... I don't know if it's shady due diligence. I suspect that's part of the part of it, or if they're just willingly ignoring all this stuff when they bring the sexy story they can to investors. But either way, like there's a lot of risk here, and it's not getting captured. And uh, yeah, it, it's just it's really crazy to me how how wild I think these uh, the lack of due diligence is here. Yeah, well, it's a lot of capital and a lot of fees that uh, are sort of generated if the deals get done, right? So the incentives aren't to be super picky um, again if they they're incentivized to put their best foot forward right because if the shareholders vote the deal down they're going to lose eight million dollars so they need to put their best foot forward so that they can get the deals done and then they can go raise their second and thirds back and they can do follow-on offers and stuff so i get it but you know when bubbles happen and everybody's encouraged to get a deal they're ignoring a lot i think they're ignoring a lot of red flags and i think it ends in tears you know a, a lot of these things like i've heard every time chamath announces a deal and chamath is someone who i He's extremely controversial, and there's parts of him I really like and parts of him I really don't. But, like, he did Clover, and uh, I used to cover healthcare, and I got so many emails from people when he did Clover at, let's say he did it at a $10 billion valuation. I can't remember. They were like, Clover was in the market to raise money at, and again, I'm just making numbers, rough numbers up, at a $4 billion valuation, and no one would touch them. And he's taking them pro- public at a $10 billion. And people, like, literally, healthcare specialists I knew were, were laughing at this and saying, it's all I can do not to short this thing because this thing is such a piece of shit, and I can't believe it valued at this. Or, uh, you know, again, the Nikola stuff, the Triterra stuff, like uh, Open Door. Open Door is another one uh, that was IPOB for Chamath. And everyone said Open Door was trying to raise money and they could not raise money at anywhere close to these terms. They were locked out of the market. Then Chamath took them public at five times what everyone thought they were worth. Their stock tripled. So, you know, paper gains will cover up a lot of wrongdoing. But you do wonder how much diligence was put there. How did he price this when no one else was paying attention to this? Uh, and, you know, maybe the, the dude he is a trend spotter. You know, he pitched, uh, my favorite thing is he pitched, I think it was Iverson in 2017. He pitched Tesla converts, right? And basically he ignored convertible math, right? He said, hey, Tesla converts give you no downside and 95% of the upside. And basically ignored, well, you're basically just buying a call option and, and a put in stuff, right? And anyone who was familiar with converts dumped on this, but he was hellaciously right, right? Like those things worked out crazy. He was in Bitcoin. He was in Amazon. So maybe he's just really good at spotting sexy stories and uh, getting on trends early. Or maybe he's just riding the bubble wave. And when it all comes crashing down, you know, the Clover open door missed missed uh, due diligence destroys him. But either way, he's a fascinating character. And some of these things are just you can see both sides and both sides are really interesting. I like the uh, I, I watched the SoFi uh, presentation. I think it was SoFi. Mm hmm. You know, 2025 estimated earnings. Uh, okay. I mean, we'll see. <laughs> I mean, look, it could work, right? Like, I have no idea. All I know is that my capital is going other places. No, I, I'm with you. It could work. But I, SoFi is so interesting, right? Because he does SoFi. Then he, 
I think he's the person who took the GameStop pump to the next level when he bought the he bought that the really upset me and he tweeted out and that really could, upset me. I'm with you and we we should talk about that because I feel like an old person how upset it was. I can't remember if we talked about this before the pod or on the pod, but it really upset me that he did that. And I also think the SEC needs to look into you know maybe that's legal. Maybe, I don't know, but if celebrities can tweet out stocks and send these stocks racing, you know. Elon Musk has done it with four different companies in the past two weeks. He tweets out, use Signal, and Signal stock is up 1,000%, and it's a completely different company. Like, the SEC needs to think about the power that celebrities have to move stocks. But Chamath tweeting out, I bought $115 call options and just, like, throwing fuel onto this fire. Um, Again, he saw a trend. He exploited it. uh, He benefited from it. I think a lot of people lost money. But then he used that to say, hey, leave Robinhood and go to SoFi. Uh, it, It was just crazy all around. Yeah, I could not agree more. Uh, and then on top of that, you know, to uh, I don't know, to be, to come in and be like, oh, well, I just wanted to or I donated all my money to charity and I was just trying to learn like, bro, you're taking SPACs public and you don't know about buying call options on a busted retailer. Like, we're really going to say that you're trying to learn here. That's that's the excuse. OK, I, the... I can't believe that the news anchor let that go. Like, they they just. I, I would have so many follow-ups to I just wanted to learn. I, I'm with you. You know, he tweeted that, and I saw a lot of people. So he tweeted, for those who don't know the story, like Wednesday morning or Tuesday morning, he tweeted, what should I buy uh, What should I buy to speculate or something? And people tweeted GameStop, and he bought those calls, and I think that's what took it to the next level. And then he sold them, and he made a po- profit, right? It, it's literally the definition of bump, pumping up. He bought short-term call options. He told people what he was doing. The stock went to the moon, and then he sold them. And he donated all the winnings to charity. And just because you donate the winnings to charity doesn't mean what you did was right. You know, like yeah, I thought I thought it was very dangerous. But I also think like it comes to the GameStop buyers are also the buyers of SPACs. So I think he was also like he knew, hmm. hey, buying the GameStop, even if he wrote those to zero. That was going to get him in good with the the Wall Street guys who were going to buy his SPACs, give him a low cost of capital to go do his next deal. So I think he saw that cycle. He's a really good marketer. Yeah, man. I think uh, I think that that's the one thing that I like. My old man syndrome really comes out when I see people that are playing a marketing game, messing around with the market, and and putting people that I believe are less sophisticated. And you know, I. I don't mean that to be like a pejorative asshole, right? Like I, I really do truly care about the people that are on Twitter or whatever that don't know anything. And they're trying to follow these guys and learn something. And they see him buy calls and they go out and buy GameStop calls. And then they don't understand what the hell is going on. And by the way, Robin hood doesn't actually answer any emails. Uh, I mean, for those that don't know, my cousin-in-law is the one that committed suicide. It just got released today to timestamp this episode that they sent him an automated email asking for $178,000 or $73,000. This is in the complaint. They have to answer it. Um, you know, he wrote back and there was no answer. Like they they didn't get back to him. And he went to, to bed like there's, you know... Other people can argue the causation, but the fact of the matter is you're dealing with options that you got to have customer service like you have to. And for people to like treat it like a game, um, you know, I've I've personally lived the consequences. I get really, really offended at that stuff. Look, I'm with you. And that's horrible. I I mean, the stuff you did with trying to hold Robin Hood accountable last year, I I think I reached out to you and said I thought it was awesome. But 
I, I'm with you. The GameStop stuff, like I had last weekend friends who'd never bought a stock in their life who were calling me and saying like, hey, should I put all of my money into GameStop on Monday? Because you know they would string a lot of words together that sounded smart, but they had no clue. They said, hey, the short interest is 115%. How can the stock ever go down until the short interest goes below 100%? How can a short interest even be over 100%? And you know, I, I have friends who lost lots of money. I have some friends who have kind of made me be like, hey, I was up $30,000 and I thought it was going to keep going up and I never sold and now I'm down $4,000 and this is, it's life changing amount of some money to people and I get mad because, you know, it was all for the lulls except for all these people who lost serious amounts of money because they got caught up in this pump and I get everyone's responsible for their own behavior but when you've got these influential billionaires who are going on and tweeting GameStop, can't go down, all this, we're buying calls. Like that influences people and they're they're using their platform in a way that really hurts people. And I'm with you. I feel like an old man, but it, it really upset me. Well, welcome to the club, man. I've been here for a little while. <laughs> but the, the other thing that sucks, man, is like t- to your point. Okay, so let's say those calls go to zero and then, you know, IPOE or whatever pops off or F. All, all of that money that was lost is now recouped in SPAC fees. Oh, like the, it's oh, it's all it's just the so, marketing. It's, it's so all the marketing much more money. It's so much more yeah. money gets recouped in SPAC fees. But I'm with you. And you know the other thing is like, I do think we scoreboard a lot, right? Where all of Chamath's spots, and I I tweeted this out. You know, he's 12 for 12 in SPAC so far. The average return on a SPAC that he's been involved with is up 150 percent, right? It's incredible. So I I do think we scoreboard though. You know, like Virgin Virgin Galactic SPCE. Yeah, the story is starting to look good, but it's not like they've delivered any financial results yet, right? And you could imagine a different world where Virgin Galactic comes in and, you know, they they put out projections and they're not raising any revenue and the market goes south on them in a hurry for one reason or another. And, and you know, I, I just think we result a lot. And I don't think a lot of these billionaires has ever proven something. You know, it's the, it's the old Tesla queue. Like, Tesla hasn't really turned... Yes, they report a gap profit, but they haven't really gotten profitable or like hit any of their targets or anything. And yes, it's a $700 billion company. So maybe just scoreboard stock price, bro, right? But also like they haven't delivered the financials yet. At some point that has to matter. Eventually. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we'll see how smart the market is, right? Like maybe the market is right that it really is worth that and the financials are on the come. I would take the other side of those bets. Oh. Look, I'm 100. And I don't, I don't lay any money. So, like that, that is a statement that isn't really worth saying. But I, let's put it this way: I avoid those bets. Yeah, and I'm with you. But I'm just like, there is a different world where Elon Musk has said Tesla was like on the verge of bankruptcy during the Model Three launch, right? Like, and this is what a lot of short sellers, including I I was short this stock at the time, were looking at, saying like, this company is a disaster. They are on the verge of bankruptcy. And there is a different world where. They don't. They do go bankrupt. Their cost of capital isn't zero. The SEC shuts them down, or, or all these different things. They go bankrupt, and then we're talking about a completely different world. It's the same guy, but because the stock price is, you know, split adjusted three thousand instead of split adjusted zero, and there's all these investigations into fraud, we we worship everything he says, right? And for for Chamath and these specs, he announces a deal, and the spec price triples in a day. So scoreboard, bro. But it's not. None of these companies have delivered on the promise. They've just run up a lot on these deals. 
Yeah. Uh, I got to ask you something because I think it's important to give people that are short sellers a voice right now. Uh, I I may think that you, that people that are shorter may be overly oppressed, but part of what happened in GameStop is Chamath and Elon coming out and like really going at short sellers. And what is the purpose of shorts in your book and how do you view short selling? There, so my book has a lot less shorts than it used to. I, I do think there is something to, hey, if you're if you're a concentrated long focus manager, right? Like the time you spend looking at shorts is probably better spent looking for like the next five X or something, you know? But to me, the short, it's everything, right? Like shorts have revealed tons of frauds. You know, you look at the stuff with Wirecard where German regulators were literally pursuing these short sellers, like trying to arrest them. And Wirecard was a complete fraud. They've revealed tons of frauds. There's also short sellers do help companies raise money. Like you look at AMC, AMC probably would have gone bankrupt last year, except people could short their stock and lend money to them. So it increases like kind of a company's options where somebody can go hedge risk somewhere and do that sort of stuff. So I don't know. I, I really respect short sellers. I, I think they they do the market a service. I think the markets work better with them. I do think the days of, you know, 115% short interest stocks is long gone. I, I don't think risk managers are going to let people do that anymore. I don't <laughs> yeah. think prime brokers are going to let people do it, do it. But look, shorting is scary. The, it is not for it is not for unsophisticated investors. It needs to be done, you know, a lot of risk management. But I, I think there's a real role for short sellers. And you look at some of the stuff short sellers are uncovering on to bring it back to my favorite topics, specs right now. You know, like the Clover, they come out, they FOIA a DOJ, a DOJ uh, investigation that the company didn't disclose in their S1. It's wild. But, you know, short we wouldn't know that if it wasn't for short sellers. Yeah. No doubt. I I, uh, I think that they do a great service to the market. So uh, hopefully, you know, some of the um, billionaires with influence don't get, uh, you know, AOC or whoever else to listen too much, because I, I really hope that, that this particular conversation is handled with the care that it deserves, because it's a dangerous thing to start saying that short sellers are un-American. That stuff pisses me off. Yeah, it, look, I, I'm sure every politician would like critical news outlets to go away, but that would be a grave disservice to you know kind of the public. And similarly, I'm sure every billionaire who's trying to paint the rosiest story possible would love short sellers to go away so no one called them out when they made misleading statements. But the fact is the short sellers are the only people with a kind of economic incentive to go call out and find these type of shenanigans. Agreed. Very agreed. So uh, on that note, I got to ask you, is there anything else you want to talk about or should we wrap this one up? No, man. Look, I, I was nervous I wouldn't be able to fill two hours, but uh, I've had fun doing this. I, I think we, we covered everything. You know, uh, uh, if anybody wants to reach out, I, hey, I obviously love to come in on this again love to have you on yet another value podcast next time you've got an idea people dude i gotta come up with an idea that warrants it i'll let you know when i do but i'm focused on this for now um hopefully hopefully in a couple months i'll be back yeah no these have been great i, I really enjoyed them again I, I, the mic went dan was awesome i'm really excited to listen to uh shameek minion capital uh that's been on the back burner for a while but i, I love i love shameek so i'm excited for that and uh yeah i, I really love this project it's been awesome Thank you. It's been fun to do, man. I feel like, uh, you know, it, it was the right time and uh, I guess audio is something I understand. So it's been a fun thing to do. I, I got to figure out how to monetize it eventually and recoup some of the cost. But I think I've got some decent ideas. We just got to sell the spot. Well, not well yes, you and I are going to merge and then we're going to SPAC. But not if to, that doesn't work out. Not to reveal to your listeners like all of your future intentions for the podcast, but what, what are you thinking? 
Um, I think what would be kind of cool, like Whitney Tillson did a book back in the day that was the art of value investing. And it was a collection of quotes. I actually think Ted Seides might've done this off of capital allocators, but it would be, I think it would be a cool way to sort of compile, compile some of the better comments from each interview and, and try to like package it in a way that is sort of a coffee table book or something that, you know, is nice and, that's just one thing. I don't know. I I don't really want to do uh, advertising. I got a shout out to Masterworks. They tried to hit me up, but I don't. Um, I don't know. That's not really like the way that I want to do it. And I mean, I've said this on on a couple before, but like the network potential that this has opened up, I'd rather use it for that than to like whore myself out for revenue. Unless we do this SPAC or Spotify brings me that Spotify money, then. All bets are off, and I could care less. That's going to be interesting. No, look, I'm with you, though. You, with the network thing, like, I think one of the things younger me thought is, like, you have to get paid for everything you do, right? And, like, sometimes the network and just putting good products out there, like, you don't realize it, but you're almost playing the seeds for some type of monetization in the future, you know? Or life is just friendlier when you're you're doing these types of interviews and making some new connections, too. And there's value in that as well. Yeah, for sure. And I, you know, I mean, like for me personally, like I, I don't think people thought, I don't think people knew that I had like a good voice or whatever. A lot of people say I have a good voice. So if CNBC needs a radio guy, oh, like oh, I'll go do that. You know what I mean? That, I many, heard, many are I've saying that I have, I have the best I'm voice good. ever. <laughs> Not exactly, but it's been fun, man. So I'm glad that, look, if people like you are enjoying it, then I'm doing a good job because, uh, you know, you're my target audience. And I, I really, one of the things that, uh, means a lot to me is like doing, I, I mean, real talk. Like when I came into this, you know, four years ago, I was trying to figure out how to invest for my, my family, right? Like, what am I going to do that I can stick with and believe in and I can sort of like build wealth, right? Because, uh, I, I have been fortunate to have some money. I don't have enough money. I mean, I need more, right. But like investing is the way that I was going to accomplish, uh, my goal. And I was with a firm that was really well-respected, um, them and I didn't see eye to eye and I needed to be able to do, uh, you know, something that I could believe in. And a lot of you guys, like I look up to a lot of you guys, a lot of you guys taught me like what I know today. So to be able to deliver a product that a lot of the people that like I look up to now like is a really cool form of reciprocation. So uh, for me, that that's that's what I get out of this. And then, you know, I get to have these kind of conversations. So who the hell wouldn't want that? Yeah, I'm with you, man. So thank you for coming on. And uh, I do think everybody should check out yet another value blog. Do you know, um, I'm not going to name his name, but MDC from Clark, Clark Street Value? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's is he coming dude. on? Is he coming on the podcast? Uh, I'm trying to get him on. I think he's going to come on. Yeah. Oh, that jerk! I, I've tried to get him on mine before. Yeah, we, we met up. Uh, in the he pre- hasn't. He hasn't committed. He's got a job that I don't know. You know, I don't know if he can. In the pre-COVID times, we met up for a drink in New York City once. But he, he's a great guy. Uh, he's one of my favorite blogs. I, 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 I selfishly, I just wish he wrote more because all of his ideas are interesting, and uh, I, I love trading thoughts with him. Yeah, I know him from uh, the Chicago CFA Society. Oh, I forgot I, about said, that. Yeah, the Chicago. Yeah, Society. man, I've never been in a room with him and not thought he's the smartest guy. Like pitching an idea when he when he goes in, especially if it's like a real estate or a special sit uh, thing. Like I've seen people pitch something to him, and he just like 
if he uh it's been funny to watch him knock down ideas in like two seconds and once i see him do it i'm like nah if he's not in i'm not in <laughs> like, this is this is a circle of confidence i'm not doing this so it's interesting all right man well we'll talk soon all right sounds good buddy talk to you soon hopefully uh hopefully i bring you an idea here sooner than later i'll, I'll be looking forward to it all right take care of yourself Thanks.